Steve and Kevin review Theros Beyond Death on episode 97 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 97 of So Many Insane Plays, our Theros Beyond Death review show. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadane.com. It's not been too long since we recorded a show, Steve, so announcements are a little thin this time. I just want to plug our local events here in Southwest Michigan. We've got monthly events in Battle Creek at Perfect Storm Comics and Games, the third Sunday of each month, and then in Grand Rapids at the Gaming Warehouse in Grandville on the fourth Sunday of each month. Both of those are full proxy events. Nice. How about in your area? heading your way. Yeah. Nothing new to what I added in the last episode. All right. Fair enough. So... In the interest of time, we want to get right into things, so it wouldn't be one of our set reviews if we didn't have a report card to see how we did on the prior set. So let's see how we did about Throne of Eldraine. Well, Steve, we reviewed several cards for Throne of Eldraine, and we actually predicted play for quite a few of them. Looks like one, two, three, four, five that we predicted play for. And there is a little bit of an asterisk about that that I'll get to in just a minute. But as usual, there are some cards that we review mostly as an academic exercise and don't predict play for and don't expect any for. And so for the likes of Mystical Dispute, Shimmer Dragon, Witch's Vengeance, and Robber of the Rich, we all predicted zeros and the result was zero. Now, there was one card that we predicted zeros for that had a non-zero number. We'll get to that in a minute. And there also were two cards that we didn't review that saw play, and we didn't review them for two pretty significantly different reasons. In the case of Mystic Sanctuary, the card simply hadn't been spoiled when we did our set review. So who knows if we would have gotten it correct, but we can talk about how we feel about the card and maybe try to back into what we might have said at the time. The big one, though, is Oko, Thief of Crowns, and I'm going to save that number for the end of this section, but we simply didn't review Oko because a combination of factors. No one on Twitter uh, asked us to, and you and I, upon reading the card, didn't even think to, so we have to take some ownership for the fact that we could have added it to the list manually if we'd felt strongly about it, but uh, that's why I made the joke on Twitter that if we don't review Oko, it's your fault, uh, which is obviously tongue firmly in cheek. But let's get into the actuals here. First up, we have Wishclaw Talisman. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted one. The actual was, sadly, zero. Zero for Wishclaw Talisman. Ah, uh, sigh. Yeah. You know, we talked, High hopes we, for that uh, we talked a lot about how it had potential, and there were some, some really good homes for it, like two-card Monty and such, and that it could have been a player in a, a variant of Paradoxical Outcome. But uh, sadly, no one no one picked up the torch and ran with it. Next up is Once Upon a Time. Steve, you predicted two. 
I predict, sorry, Steve, you predicted four. <laughs> I predicted two. And the actual was three, right, <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> so if, if I'm not going to take a win, that's uh it's a team victory. There. <laughs> that is a, a pretty good team victory there. You're right. So once upon a time has started showing up recently in green, white Eldrazi base builds where most of the cards in the deck constitute a hit for that card in the early game. And it gives the deck a little bit of selection, the likes of which it doesn't otherwise have. So let's move on to Questing Beast. You and I both predicted one, which is a little unusual for us, but hey, we're not beholden to ceremony. And sure enough, the answer was one. <laughs> one what was that? Where did it appear? It was a sideboard appearance as a one of in Survival, which is, you know, it's within the, the, it's within the realm of the, the predictions that we had. We, we agreed that it could be a sideboard role player for against control decks or something. And sure enough, that's where it showed up. Awesome. Okay, interestingly, here's our here's our zero. Emery, Lurker of the Lock. You and I both predicted zero, but the actual was two. Two top eights by Remind Emery. Remind me what this card is. Emery is the ostensibly three-mana legend who mills a couple of cards and then you can replay artifacts out of your graveyard. Oh, yeah, the blue creature. That's right. And she her cost is reduced for each artifact you have in play. She effectively has affinity for artifact. And right. notably, uh, friend of the show... Uh, Justin Gennari included Emery in his challenge-winning Urza deck. And so not only did he uh, eventually tick the box for Urza, which we've already celebrated on his behalf, but Emery was in that list too as a role player. So next up comes some of the big hitters. Deafening Silence. Steve, you predicted 23. I predicted 19. We went round and round about this. My original, I think, was 11. And then at the end of the discussion, I, I, I went way up. Yeah, that's right. We, you and I kind of reinforced each other. The actual was two, only two appearances in top eights by Deafening Silence. And recall that our criteria here is, is tournaments of 32 players or more. So we're filtering out, you know, League 5-0s and, and other smaller tournaments. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, obviously, you and I reinforced each other, perhaps a bit of an echo chamber here on Deafening Silence. But um, it really just did not pan out to be as disruptive a force, despite the fact that all of the conditions, at least the decks that we hypothesized it would uh, punish, were strongly represented in the metagame. PO and Xerox, yeah. right? Just apparently Which, didn't have a home. I think one of the one of the challenges with Deafening Silence is is well, the primary challenge is what you just said: is it doesn't have a home. There's no. There are very few white decks that. You know, the survival deck, I think, my suspicion is that one of the ones that top aided was probably either a survival deck or an Eldrazi deck. That is correct, yes. The challenge, though, the, the second challenge besides having a good home is that you're, there's a challenge as, as to how many you run and how consistent it can be, mm-hmm. right? It's like, if you run four, you're dedicating too much space to this card, which is a superfluous effect once you get the second one down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and relatedly it's often just not fast enough. So so you, you have a tension, there's a tension in that you really want it early as, as possible and consistently as possible, but the marginal utility of the card is so low. So that, that I think that's part of where the tension around the card comes. You know, it's like, it's not like Leyline where if you have Leyline in your opening hand, you, the, the, you know, you get the utility out of it even if you aren't able to play it on turn one, because you can you can play it on turn zero. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this isn't a card that you run four of anyway. So it, it's basically like a two, a one, two, or maybe a three of, but as a two or one of, which is probably the sweet spot, it's just not consistent enough to prevent PO from comboing out really fast, really quickly. Yeah. 
And it, as such, it would need to be kind of a natural bolster to an existing strategy in whatever deck it played in. And we simply haven't found the deck that, that has that condition. Right. I, I actually tested it for a little while. I think I played even a challenge with uh, a Stoneforge deck that had it. And it was very good in the Stoneforge deck. Yeah. But I, and I thought the Stoneforge deck was surprisingly good, but I didn't have the time or energy to really tune that deck into a place I thought it would have been really consistently good. Yeah. Well, I do think there's longer term home for Deafening Silence. We say this about a lot of cards that underperform in our first review, but in many cases, it's definitely true. Uh, you'll have only can, to look further than uh, Urza, for example, <laughs> to find an example of that. Right. I, I just wanted to point out that thus far, every single card has either been a 1, 2, or a 3. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. So this, th- there have been, thus far, three cards that have seen play. This is actually, mar- this is the fourth, actually. Yeah. yeah. Been quite marginal. That's right. Well, we're going to get on to some that are not marginal. And the first of those is Stone Coil Serpent. Steve, you predicted one. I predicted none. The actual <laughs> was 18. My God. 18. This basically became a, a de facto inclusion in aggro workshop lists in order to right. fight the, the predominant multicolor threats, or be, in that case, answers to shops in the form of DAC and Abrupt Decay slash Assassin's Trophy. And Oko. Mm-hmm. And Oko. So what do you make of that? I mean, you think... I... And what do you make of our analysis that led us to underpredict it? At least I was on the board for it, but, yeah. you know, barely. Unlike Deafening Silence, where I can see the conditions that have made the card simply not, not ideal and not functional, I am actually genuinely surprised that Stone Coil Serpent has met with so much success. And my surprise is driven by my anecdotal experience playing against it. Since I haven't played workshops for the last couple of years, I only play against this card. And the kinds of decks that I play feature heavily answers like uh, Shattering Spree, for example. And maybe it's just that it doesn't line up well against me personally, but I have never been incredibly impressed by Stone Coil Serpent. And to, to the degree that I thought it was it was better than, it had more wins over replacement than the next best card in Workshop Aggro. So. I am, call me surprised that this card has become such a staple. Yeah, I have to actually go back and, and re- because I just don't recall the details of our analysis at this remove. Um, I do remember us talking about how it scales nicely with shop mana. Definitely. But I think what, I think what led me to underestimate the card in that regard was that the shop aggro decks that were prevalent or had been prevalent in recent years were those that were much lower to the ground in terms of mana. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me seemed less important. The scaling function of it seemed less less significant. I think I think we just underestimated how important the ability to just shut off DAC was. No, we didn't give that quite enough weight. Or, or Oko, and and obviously we couldn't have anticipated Oko because we we didn't review it. <laughs> yeah. And even if we had, we certainly would not have predicted the position it currently occupied or or did o- recently occupied. Right. Um. I think it had a. Cr- I think. Stone Coil Serpent had a, arrived at a critical moment, mm-hmm. and the metagame context more than I think the raw power explains its position. But it's also possible we just underestimated the raw power. I mean, it, it tramples as well, right? Yeah, it has trample and reach. Yeah, both of those actually abilities I think grafted together give it a bit of a boost, especially in kind of a tokens environment, right? That the fact that it can get so big and then trample over is is makes it just I mean a, a really threatening mid to late game play right you you top deck it and then it's just hard to stop uh very much so 
I I really don't know what else to say at this point. It, it obviously goes down as a big miss for us, and it for me, I must say that personally, it feels like uh, a blind spot. <laughs> Basically, I don't understand how it's very that's this good. Meaning, I have seen it in play, and I've seen it win a couple of games here and there, but that's that's not enough to say, hey, this card was going to have eighteen top eights in this time period, and uh, yeah, and it still continues to put up top eights. I mean, there was. It was in the challenge just on January 19th, for example, two copies in the top eight. That is to say yeah. two decks playing it in the top eight. And so it's not a flash in the pan. It's had relatively consistent performance over this time period, and it appears to be here to stay. Yeah, it, it's kind of also got, because of the trample ability, it's kind of got a little bit of that ballista characteristic where you can just move all the Ravager tokens to it and then instantly win through trample damage as well. Yeah, which makes it, it makes it a trump to mentor and pyromancer and, and I, I don't know bri- I think, bridge tokens. I think there must be an element also where this is a specific reaction to bug, right? This threat yeah, is a, that's part of is it. especially good against bug because it trumps most of their removal, save like fatal push, and it has force no activated ability. Yeah, it doesn't trump fatal uh, force of vigor. It has no activated ability, so it's not directly affected by oof save the reduction in size from turning off moxen and it can also grow larger than tarmogoyf so that's an issue that that workshop decks have historically had is that a goyf can can kind of brick wall you in pivotal early turns so i i imagine that the combination of factors there meant that it was just the right thing against bug in the moment we'll see if that continues to be the case right I could definitely see a world where Stone Coil Serpent is really kind of the first card to be cut to save space for some new development in shop lists. Right, <laughs> right. For workshop players, my guess is that they've got that slot penciled in rather than inked, inked in, <laughs> because that's that's a spot that will will give way when the metagame shifts in a different a different direction. Yep, totally agree. But hey, workshop decks is an egg is a, a metagame deck in its own small ways at all times. Before we move on to the next item in the report card, I don't remember whether we discussed this, but it occurs to me to ask, is this the first just X artifact spell? Artifact creature? Uh, no, it is, it's definitely not. And I mean, what, if you mean a single X, like Workshops already yes. actively plays the multiple just two X creatures. X. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, I right, know right. that. I mean, there's plenty of that. But I, I wonder, again, I said it, it's occurs to me that we could have underestimated just how powerful that scaling ability is. Is is a mana sink or a mana dump? But is there anything that we can compare this to that can shed light? Is there what other X turning into XX power artifact creatures exist in the in the card pool? Can you think of any? Or is this the first? The short answer is no. There are a few artifact creatures historically that just cost X, but the list is short and the earlier ones are pretty soft. Like <laughs> and they, but but X into XX, X power and toughness. Yes, but there's a caveat there. Like, one of the okay. early ones, Shifting Wall, is a wall. It oh, has, yeah. It, it, has a yeah. De- it has Defender. <laughs> I remember that from the old Flash deck. Right, right. Then yeah. there's, from Visions, there's Phyrexian Marauder. Now, it comes into play with X counters. It can't block, and it can't attack unless you pay one generic mana for each counter on it. <laughs> wow. So, it obviously need not apply in a work- Mistress Workshop context. Then... Very recent. Then there's a, a huge gulf. There hasn't. There isn't another one until Chamber Century is printed in Guilds of Ravnica. <laughs> That's a gulf what? for you from Visions to Guild of Ravnica. Chamber Century is um is an X for an XX, 
but it enters the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter on it for each color of mana spent to cast oh, it. Oh, yeah. so it's not a shop card. Exactly. And by it's the way, a that's a card. nine-year gap. Gateways Guilds of Ravnica is, is the more recent Ravnica set, so it's almost a 20-year gap. That's a huge wow. gap, yeah. So the short yeah. answer is no. The long answer is yes. This is really the first single X straight for an XX that doesn't have some huge drawback that would otherwise make it unplayable. That you can play with shops. Correctly, yeah. Yeah, wow. So... I mean, I think we both assume that this card would not be nearly as good if it didn't have the protection from multicolor. But it does raise a kind of fundamental question, right? An elemental question is, what is the basic value of X for XX power and toughness in a format where Mishra's Workshop is legal? Yeah, and I, we, we I, don't really have the answer to that question because there had never been no precedent for that. That's, right? a, so that's a good really- point, and I completely agree with your, your premise. Unfortunately, we're not going to get an answer anytime soon either because this card has basically three abilities that that lift it far above that threshold right reach (laughs) trample and protection are huge uplifts over just that baseline so we can't really say i'm comfortable saying that if it didn't have those three abilities it wouldn't be playable but i am also comfortable saying you could take reach out of the equation and it would still be almost as good and so and 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 trample is a big part and the protection is a big part yeah i think that's what's interesting right is the scaling ability trample is is i mean Without trample, the scaling ability loses so much of its value mm-hmm. because you could just chump turn after turn. And there are a lot of the- token-based or other kinds of strategies that are capable of chumping in vintage. Right. Anyway, thank you for humor- humoring me on that question. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. So now we get to the cards we did not review. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of an exercise, the likes of which we've never really done before. And just remind our, our listeners why we didn't review them again. Yeah, in the case of Oko, as I said, the this didn't come up in our Twitter survey, and neither you nor I, Steve, nominated it ourselves to put on the list. It didn't stand out enough to us. And the other one is Mystic Sanctuary, which simply had not been spoiled when we recorded our set review. So let's talk first about Mystic Sanctuary, a personal favorite of mine. Now, I don't really have much else to say other than the number, but Steve, do you want to say anything or guess anything to preempt the actual number from your perspective well analytically i just want to say that i think part of the reason the card is so important is because it's it functions really well with gush mm-hmm. so it kind of slots very nicely into um xerox decks and also it's just an all-purpose I mean, the fact that it's an island means it can be replayed with gush but also fetched out with any of the onslaught or more recent fetch lands mm-hmm um, and it's kind of just the functionality of this kind of is like a finisher. It's like the anti-library. Library <laughs> begins its work on turn one yep. and then takes over the game, whereas this is kind of a capper, right? Yep. You're both, say, top decking or drawing off the top. One player draws a fetch land, which would normally be a dead draw, except they turn it into this. And then as long as they survive one more turn, the game kind of a, it, it just ends. It's over. Yeah. And if you can, it has a kind of a snowball quality too, where you can. Like if you can get gush, then you can replay it, and they get time walk, and it's just it's just over, you know. Yeah. And then you can begin pairing two of them, and you can really do some insanity. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I have some disdain and irritation for this card. Is maybe another word, simply yeah. because it it seems to push that remote but tantalizing prospect of gush being ever unrestricted again further and further <laughs> out of reach. Uh, so, I, I agree. And, and it's not really a card. This isn't a card that you could restrict. To really, you know, curb it because it's my guess is almost entirely played as a as a singleton, with a few exceptions, maybe in a land deck or some deck that like a Xerox deck that really wants to bank on it, or a M- Matthew Murray uh, contraption. 
<laughs> uh, concept. Uh, my guess is that we're this is so stone stone coil serpent was eighteen. You said and uh, sets yes. the bar. My guess is that's probably in that range, maybe a little more. I'd say twenty two. <laughs> well, in addition to those observations that you just made, which I mostly agree with, I'm pretty sure that our analysis of the the impact of this card and the utility of it would also have hinged on how low the opportunity cost is for inclusion. Right. That it slots right. very well as a one of, maybe even more, but at least a one of into existing mana bases with very a little lot. adjustment, and it has an outsized impact when the game goes longer. To your to your Reaches point, that point, yeah, yeah, and it's not that long of a game, right? I mean, it comes online on turn four, ostensibly. All things uh, that is equal. kind of a long game, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I played, I played plenty of games where <laughs> you know it's the third land, or you have it in your opening hand. You know, it's it, sure, it's not sure. a seamless card. It can I, be. It can be a little awkward. Acknowledged. Acknowledged. Uh, but the simple truth is, is that especially when you get into blue mirrors, for example, right. hitting, hitting a fourth land is not is not unheard of. So, no. but anyway, the, I'm pretty sure we would have alluded to that when we discussed it. And as such, our method for calculating play would have been some portion of Xerox decks, for example, right? right? Which is a, right. a method we're used to, and we would have arrived at a pretty healthy number if we had just taken, I don't know half Xerox decks as a starting point and then discussed it from there. So I'm not I'm not comfortable predicting my exact number, but I can oh, no, no. I can tell what my what my method would have been and it would have been to start with about half of Xerox decks and and then, you know, debate from there. Yeah, sorry. When I said that I my guess as to what we're going to actually see based upon the numbers I've seen in top 8s, I think it's probably going to be in the 20s. I mean, it, I think it appeared in Wait, it may not have actually appeared in the Vintage Championship Top 8, but I thought it did. Uh, um, it, it did. Hold on just a moment. I, I could have sworn that it did. I've got to go back and find it. Eternal Weekend Champs Pittsburgh, there were three players with it. Boston, Jeremy, okay. and Ryan all had copies of Mystic Sanctuary. So, so that's, three decks that's played a, it. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me, it could be in the 30s. I think if I had, you know, obviously if we'd gone back, I think I probably would have predicted the 10 to 20 range. But my guess is, based upon what we know now, mm-hmm. It sounds like it's maybe like, like I said, the twenties, maybe low thirties range. I, okay. I, I mean, that's probably. Let's stop keeping me in suspense. What's the actual? <laughs> well, you know, the high irony is it was actually one of the first numbers that you said. The actual was twenty-two. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a healthy appearance, and it's more than Stone Coil Serpent in in this report card. Yeah. Marginally. Yep. But yeah. no longer burying the lead, let's talk about Oko Thief of Crowns. So without seeing the number, which I have seen, unfortunately, so I can't well, be objective we did, here. We did mention it in the uh the year in review last That's right. episode. That's but- right. So you have heard <laughs> the actual number, and so we don't need to debate any further. The actual appearances for Oko was thirty one. And that is makes it the it. most yeah, the most played card from Throne of Eldraine in our report card. So in revert in order of top card to bottom, you know, Basically, this set, Throne of Eldraine, will be the known as the Oko set. Mm-hmm. But second was Mystic Sanctuary, third was Stone Coil Serpent, and then there was a smattering of... Yeah, fourth uh, is technically once upon, time, once upon a Time, yeah, and then some twos and one. Tie between Deafening Silence and... Emery. The other Emery. Mm-hmm. Emery is a very interesting card in the context of this new set. Yeah. Well, definitely, and I think Emery has some high-impact homes potentially in the future still, because Emery's a right. kind of a high-impact card. I know that That's Oko... That's foreshadowing, by the way. <laughs> I know that Oko is a obviously a headliner here for, for, for more ways than two or three, but I have to be honest, 
you and I have talked about it before that th- there's no sure thing that Oko that there's a place for Oko exactly in all possible futures of vintage, right? But I can't shake the notion that Mystic Sanctuary is going to actually win the marathon for this set. I think it, it <laughs> I think it's more of a natural inclusion in more different kinds of decks in the long run. If green stops being in favor, for example, and you know Jeskai or Grixis yeah. become far far more dominant, then Mystic Sanctuary will continue to throw numbers out there when Oko cannot. I, uh, I'm not making any strong predictions here. I'm just saying that I think I won't be surprised if a year from now, Mystic Sanctuary is a mainstay and Oko maybe has fallen a little uh, to the wayside. Boy, you're a hater on Oko. <laughs> no, I really <laughs> yeah. enjoy Oko's ascension in terms of slaying formats, uh, band lists, but, uh, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> but, uh, I'm just saying that I don't think it is a sure thing that it is a, a rock star for the long but term. You, you raise an interesting question. I mean, there's a lot of possible volatility in in the futures market if you will for these cards mm-hmm. i think though that the challenge in that kind of projection is that we've seen both shop aggro and xerox in kind of a downward trajectory i think i'm i'm a little bit more bullish on stone coil serpent because we saw kind of xerox crash at the end of 2019 mm-hmm. i don't know if it's coming back in, a, in any you know more than a modest way i have faith that they will that mystic sanctuary will continue to see play but What's interesting to me about Stone Coil Serpent is that I think Stone Coil Serpent slots into both Workshop Control decks, Workshop Aggro decks, and kind of the hybrid versions of shops mm. that try and do multiple things. I th- I just think it's kind of like a finisher. It, you know what? It's kind of like Kevin. It's kind of like Karn and the old Stacks deck. Yeah. You know, it's it's a kind of a resilient finisher. Yeah. That so I think that Stone Coil Serpent may have a, a higher floor than just thinking about shop aggro's position in the long-term metagame may suggest. That's fair. I could see that. I'm not saying it's a higher floor than Mystic Sanctuary. I'm just saying it, it could also win that marathon race, making yeah. the case for that. Yeah. Yep. We'll have to see. So in general, the summary of our throne report card is it's one of the weirder ones in a long time. We didn't yes. review the two most played cards in the set. I mean, that's the first time that's ever happened. We, well, we rushed to try and we rushed to try and do the podcast, yeah, to give us give you our you know early bird reviews, and it kind of bit us. Yeah, in the butt. absolutely. And I have to admit that I, I would not have pitched Oko nearly as much, anywhere near as much as it's actual if I were analyzing it properly in the in the moment. But we're probably fortunate that we didn't review it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I probably would have given it like a, a, a less than five. I would have given it like a, a one, two, three kind of score, putting it in the same realm as some of the Chandras we've reviewed in the last, in like in, in the core set and other things. But anyway, we don't need to belabor that point anymore. Let's move on and see how we do uh, on Theros Beyond Death. We like to begin our set reviews by talking about mechanics for the new set, in case there's anything noteworthy. And in this case, there kind of is. In fact, there really is. This is a return to the Theros environment, uh, that is to say, the world of Theros, and as such, it's a return to several of the original Theros mechanics. Devotion, Constellation, the Gods, these are returning mechanics that we don't need to reanalyze. They're also, they also happen to be mechanics that aren't especially interesting in Vintage. 
there has been scant play by some of the gods. I've seen some some Karanos in play in Vintage, but um, in general, those are mechanics that need not apply. There's a an, another returning mechanic, but it's not returning from Theros, and that is Sagas, and because they are a natural fit with the the enchantment sub-theme of Theros. So Sagas are here, but again, those are not really a Vintage particular mechanic. But one new mechanic for this set is, I think, highly relevant to Vintage, and that is Escape. So most of you probably know this already, but escape is a method of playing cards out of your graveyard. It's very similar to flashback in that sense, but with some key exceptions. For one, the cards aren't exiled when they resolve. So in that sense, it's a little bit more like retrace, I suppose. And also escape can function on permanents and spells, instants and sorceries. Escape is normally costed as some mana cost plus some number of cards that you must exile from your graveyard in addition to the card you're casting. So... It's all the all the escape cards, I believe, are printed as escape with a mana cost and then exile X other cards from your graveyard. And there's at least one example, actually two to three other cards that relate to escape that we're going to discuss. So we'll examine that more when we get to them. Steve, any other thoughts about the mechanics of this set before we dive in? Well, the escape mechanic is exciting, if not tantalizing, just because <laughs> it's so inherently... I mean, look, flashback is already... A ridiculous mechanic that sees lots of play across all constructed formats. It it seems impossible that Escape won't. And Escape is even better in Vintage relative to other formats than Flashback is in Vintage relative to other formats because Vintage is a format that has a lot of card celerity. Yes, I think um, I, I hate to sound like Rich Shea here complaining about about uh, thematics and flavor, but. <laughs> The escape mechanic, I think, sound is 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 not exactly what I would assume. You know, based upon the name of it, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Okay. Uh, usually, dead things don't escape. Things that escape are things that are in play. So, <laughs> I, anyway, it's not what I would name. So, I'm just gonna you know let's bracket that. Um, but but I'm really excited to review at least one, if not more, escape cards here, and I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about here. Especially, I want to highlight the fact that the cards are not exiled, which means that you can play them over and over and over again, something that vintage decks like to do. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really encapsulated it in my mind the way you said it just then, but I do want to reinforce the the quality of the observation you made vis-a-vis Flashback. Flashback's cost, for the most part, is dictated by mana. And as you observed, vintage is a format all about reducing mana costs to their absolute minimum. And so a high-cost flashback card, let's say Firebolt as an example, one, right. one, one, it's R for two damage and then four R for flashback. That card's completely unplayable in Vintage. You can't expect to get to five mana to flash but it back. awesome and standard. Yeah, that's a great example. The converse that you have deserved here is that the limiting factor for escape tends to be the quantity of cards you need to exile from your graveyard, which makes it much more akin to Delve and as we know with flashback yeah, yeah and as we mu- as we know delve is entirely broken in vintage uh to the point <laughs> yeah. where we've had multiple spells that had to be restricted because it's it's too easy to achieve delve and so in terms of expected performance that bodes very well for escape let's move on to a key example of this escape business and that is underworld breach for a cost of one r this is an enchantment that reads each non-land card in your graveyard has escape the escape cost is equal to the card's mana cost plus exile three other cards from your graveyard. At the beginning of your end step, sacrifice Underworld Breach. 
we could not have started with a more exciting and powerful uh, <laughs> implementation of escape than this, Steve. It's we we have a, a terrifying as another <laughs> adjective you could that's apply. Right. But we yeah. have another contender here for the Yogmoth's will crown. So, um, where to begin? Like, well, look, I'd like to begin with Yogmoth's will itself, and just remind listeners because the Yogmoth's will era is a little bit in the past now, but there was a long period. 10 to 15 years where Yogmoth's Will was basically the most powerful card in, in vintage. You know, it was it was essentially up there with Yog with Black Lotus and Ancestral Recall and so on. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because so many of the decks in the format were essentially organized around strategically oriented around achieve building up to executing and then the denouement of of Yogmoth's Will. And the rest of the decks in the format were basically decks that were trying to prevent the Yogmoth's Will decks from executing the Yogmoth's Will plan. So, like the Control Slaver decks, the Gifts decks, you know, the the Long decks. I mean, the whole idea of the, you know, the Burning Wish or Grim Tutor deck or now Dark Petition is, I mean, is that you get to Yogmoth's Will, play Yogmoth's Will, and then everything after that is really gravy. <laughs> this Yogmoth's Will is immensely powerful, one of the most powerful cards of all time. This is in. Uh, this is essentially. In many respects, Yogmoth's Will. It's absurd. I mean, Yogmoth's Will essentially gives every card in, in the your graveyard flashback until end of turn. That's basically what it does. More or less. This does yeah. this this does the exact same thing, except that you have to remove three cards in addition to paying the mana cost. Mm-hmm. So this card is potentially broken, if not potentially restriction worthy. Let's just I mean, if it if that comparison holds. Now obviously a lot depends on how much that additional cost really matters, right? Mm-hmm. They, that is, what difference... So in the Yawgmoth's Will graveyard of 10 cards, you can play all 10 cards. When you play this, you can only play, let's say, three cards. There's also... There is a, a, another difference, though, mm-hmm. which is when you play Yawgmoth's Will, every card you play after that go, that go, would go to the graveyard is, is exiled. So if you play a, a spell that was not in your graveyard, but you play it from your hand... Um, after resolving Yogmoth's Will, it's automatically exiled. That's not the case here. So this card can feed itself in a way that Yogmoth's Will can't. So I think the juxtaposition between this and Yogmoth's Will is actually enormously uh, illuminating. So to use a very practical example, Tendrils of Agony. Many DPS and DPS variant decks in the past have had a single copy of Tendrils, and right. that that copy had to be cast for lethal, and if you cast it from a Yogmoth's Will, that was your last chance. If you play right. Tendrils in conjunction with Underworld Breach, you could conceivably cast Tendrils for four copies, let it go to your graveyard, in the same turn, cast it again for five copies. Because, right. uh, sorry, uh, what I meant to say is coming from your graveyard. You could have Tendrils in your right. graveyard and play Underworld, right. Underworld Breach, cast it for four copies, and just recast it for five copies. Again, yeah, from your graveyard. Exactly, right. if you had sufficient cards in mana. Um. The other, there are a couple other things I just want to, so let's hone in. I mean, I, I think we need to keep the juxtaposition with, with Yogma's Will front and center. But let me just start with a simple card. Let's just start with Black Lotus and Underworld Breach. <laughs> I know that. Okay. Because the, what? I, because I, I think it. that really just keep, keeps things really, really simple. So you, you have, let's say, just pick a number of cards in our graveyard, Kevin. Five. For this type. Five. Okay. You, you have five cards in your graveyard. You play Black Lotus. Let's say you play Black Lotus from your, gra- from your graveyard. So you exile three of those cards, leaving two left. You, you return Black Lotus. You you sacrifice the Black so, Lotus. It goes to your graveyard. One second, so you Steve. Have three. You would actually have one card left because Black Lotus was one of the five. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. So in 
Let me redo that. Okay. Let me redo that. So you okay, five cards. Let's assume Black Lotus is in your graveyard and you cast Underworld Breach here for a red and a colorless. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um you're gonna cast Black Lotus, exiling three cards, leaving one other card in your graveyard. You can cast Black Lotus now. You've already netted a man net a mana. You can cast multiple spells from your hand. When the Black Lotus goes to the graveyard, now you have two cards in your graveyard. Mm-hmm. If you can play two more spells, say sorceries or instants, you can now replay Black Lotus. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can do it over and over again. If you have, I don't know, 12 cards in your graveyard, you could replay Black Lotus four times. It's abs- it's really... So, Black Lotus and Lion's Eye Diamond, oh, yeah. and to a slightly lesser extent, Dark Rituals, Lotus Petal. are enormously powered up by this card. Lotus, Lotus Petal, I think, a little less so, but yes. yes. Yep. Those two cards, Lion's Eye Diamond gets an absurd boost with this card, because... When you cast, obviously, when you activate Lion's Eye Diamond, all the cards go to your graveyard, which, unlike with Yawgmoth's Will, are not exiled. So if you have a hand of seven, and you you have a Lion's Eye Diamond, let's just say in play, and you sacrifice it, all those cards then become fodder for the Underworld Breach. Mm-hmm. And in the example that you used with just with Lotus, basically, it plays incredibly, incredibly well with cantrips. Simple cantrips. Preordain, Ponder, yes. Brainstorm. Because for one mana... Like you, you break the lotus for three. If you play three cantrips with that, you've just rebought your lotus by putting those three cards into your graveyard. Right. So those three cantrips were effectively free. Or if you play tutors, like it could be a top deck tutor, it could be, um, you know, um, demonic tutor, a grim tutor, a dark petition. Any of those cards just continue that you use with the lotus mana on. F- continue to fill the graveyard and allow you to get the lotus back. So you could realistically so, uh, play the lotus several times in an underworld breach turn. And that is not something you can do with Yawgmoth's Will. Mm-hmm. So I think the three most powerful things you can do basically with this card, it, it's the top of the curve, are Lions of Diamond, Black Lotus, and Dark Ritual. Mm-hmm. In no particular order. I mean, the fact that you can go Dark Ritual, uh, Exile three cards, Dark Ritual is <laughs> is just unbelievable. Also, I mean, it's so enormously broken. Also, Steve, on, on a related note, any spell that ostensibly replaces its mana cost in one way or another, like, say, Frantic Search. Now, Frantic Search isn't a great magic card yes. at the moment, but it becomes no. very low cost with Underworld Breach because you are untapping the mana you used to cast it. It goes right back into the graveyard along with two of its friends. I mean, right. that's incredible synergy with Underworld Breach. Right. And um, no, we I mentioned... The foreshadowing with Emery is, is that Emery puts cards in the in your graveyard in a way that feeds this card nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that you know Yawgmoth's Will gains an enormous amount of its value with Black Lotus and Dark Rituals, and certainly Lion's Eye Diamond. You know, for years it was one of the reasons. That's the reason that Lion's Eye Diamond was restricted. I, I just think we can't underestimate how powerful Lion's Eye Diamond is with this card. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously Black Lotus is by far the most powerful. But the fact that, you know, but Lion's Eye Diamond is a very close second, I think, I suspect. Yeah, this, um, this functionally removes a lot of the drawbacks, so to speak, of Lion's Eye Diamond in practice. Right, right. I mean, it's like, once you have the Underworld Breach, the only thing you're afraid of is your opponent destroying Underworld Breach after you... I mean, that would be the most devastating thing. <laughs> but, it's, right, is like you activate Lion's Eye Diamond, which I don't think your opponent can respond to. It's a mana ability, no. Yeah, so you would get priority, but the get, like you put something on the stack and your opponent disenchants Underworld Breach, that would be the nightmare scenario. <laughs> that would be pretty rough, yeah. Because it's it's not a continuous effect like Yawgmoth's Will. Once Yawgmoth's Will resolves, 
the effect can't be countered. I mean, I suppose you could play like Orem's Chant or something like that. <laughs> right, but, right. But um, so that's the first thing I want to say is that just really emphasize how just absurd the mana production possibilities are with Underworld Breach, with specifically those three cards. But you can go down the list beyond that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think you could you could look at you know all the other rituals and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it obviously has negative synergy with the threshold rituals, like Cabal Ritual, but uh, let's just bracket that. The second point I want to make is that this card not only costs less than Yogmas Will, but is in many ways in a much more convenient color. And it's interesting that um, you know I never thought we'd see the day. You know, <laughs> for forever, blue and black were by far the most powerful cards and uh, colors in in Vintage. I think my guess is that red has is is now ahead of black in terms of seeing the most play. Oh yeah. Um and and so having Yogmoth's will in red is kind of like it opens up a, a kind of domain of possibilities that were heretofore uh, you know impossible and and you know kind of difficult to imagine. So, for example, a Xerox deck can now play with Yogmoth's will. <laughs> you know, like you can play blue red Xerox with this card and kind of be playing Yogmoth's will. It's absurd. I um, I plan to Right. I mean, you can, and, and that's just something that's, that's scary. It's terrifying in its implications. You can play a green red oath deck with this, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Your opponents countered your oath. You played a bunch of cantrips. I'll just play Underworld Breach, replay oath, replay some cantrips. You know, what are you going to do? Now, if they counter your oath, you can replay oath again. I'll just play oath several times. It's just, it's so obnoxious. It's beyond. <laughs> so that's one of the things I just want to point out is that it fits into archetypes and strategies that were really not possible before, right? Because you're, you're playing black as a secondary or tertiary color. And now we can play a, a red decks that are blue, red X and get Yogmoth's will. It opens up so many possibilities. That's my second main point. Well, uh, in specific support of that point, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this deck, this card has already put up a top eight in the Vintage Challenge last week in Oath, in a Sun Titan Oath deck. Interesting. Two copies of Underworld Breach, two copies of Sun Titan. And it doesn't take a, a scientist to point out that if you Oath up a Sun Titan and return yeah. a Underworld Breach directly to the battlefield, <laughs> it's like an uncounterable Yogmoth's will that you've just it's, achieved. It's essentially recouping Yogmoth's will. Yeah, but right? it's uncounterable. It's uncounterable. Yeah. Wow. And you can do it Absurd. repeatedly <laughs> if you want. And, and assuming you've binned enough cards with the Oath... Then you've got, you know, you're really in great shape. Yeah, and you can loop um, time walk with that play. So let's say you've yeah, you been 12, 13 cards, and time walk is one of them. You can just cast time walk half a dozen times. <laughs> and you can't even restrict. You can't even restrict underworld breach to stop that kind of shenanigans. Not that particular one, no. No, uh, it's this card is so broken. Also, think about so think about like you know different combinations. I want to focus on the second point though before we kind of dive into more strategic possibilities. I just want to. Focus on the color pie aspect of this more. Yeah. Think about something like Green Red Belcher. No, an old archetype that's basically defunct. This card slots so nicely into that archetype because, number one, it's a ritual-based deck, and you can replay the rituals over and over again. Number two, it again allows you to replay card. It has Lion's Eye Diamonds, and it allows you to replay threats that have been countered, like Empty the Warrens, which is obviously hard to counter, but, you, but obviously it feeds Empty the Warrens in the sense of... Uh, of storm as well mm-hmm. or a belcher so you could imagine someone trying to trying a deck like that right that gets a lot of power the other the, the other thing is draw sevens are enormously powerful with this wheel of fortune gives you more resource mm-hmm. right gives you more cards in hand and then 
you know, helps you discard superfluous cards, like maybe an extra land that can feed Underworld Breach. Um, so I think, you know, obviously win a deck, a draw set, a deck, a combo deck with draw sevens and Underworld Breach is like, that's what you want to do. Like, that's a very powerful thing to do. If you go like turn one, either Windfall, Wheel of Fortune, or Tinker into, it could be either Bolas's Citadel or, um, uh, or Memory Jar. You're gonna have plenty of resources to go just absolutely nuts with Underworld Breach. Um, so I've kind of shifted into a third point, which is kind of like, this really makes a lot of those, like, those cards that move, that quickly move lots, do zone shifts, mm-hmm. you know, to the graveyard a lot, a lot more powerful. But I, I think the main thing, you know, is that this opens up strategic possibilities for decks that would love to play Yogmoss Will, but don't want to splash black to do it. And or don't have the ability to protect the spells, even if they can resolve Yogmas will. So you don't need the, if you can resolve this card. Like for example, your opponent has Flusterstorms, Kevin, mm-hmm. right? Or Pyroblast. You can get this through. Okay, I'm going to play Time Walk, Pyroblast. I'll play Time Walk again. You know, counter. I'll, I'll do it again. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep hammering at you. That's a really interesting until- point. Is that it's it is obviously a reinforcement of what you observed earlier about the cards not being exiled. But if your goal is to play one particular card and that one above all else, you get multiple shots at it with this. Yeah. That's, I think like in that's a noteworthy. Deck. Yeah. Yeah. It, when your deck hinges on one card, right? This card is a kind of form of protection. That's just enormous. It's just, it's, it's really enormous. Imagine you're playing Jeskai against shops, for example. And you've got into a resource war, right? You've got into the mid game, but they're still ahead on board. They've got, let's say, <laughs> two or three creatures, right? You can just play this and escape a swords to plowshares and escape that same swords so, to plowshares again. This is so absurd yeah. in Xerox against shops. I can't even. I mean, it's hard to even boggles my mind to think about how good this card is against against shops. Now, the the downside is it's you know you've got to make the initial investment in this. Yeah, but. My God, you can do so much. You could easily just crush your opponent with this. You could, you could see how that could easily go, right? Like you Absolutely. just said, like, okay, I'll, I'll fragmentize you. I'll plow you. Okay. I've cleared some things. I'll replay a deck from my graveyard. I mean, it's just, just absurd. <laughs> so, it's absurd. I, and in the mirror, it's, I mean, it's just, it is Yogmoss Will in the Xerox mirror. I don't see, I don't yeah. see how a, a Xerox mirror. The person who resolves this is going to win the game. And it can't be pyroblasted and can't be flusterstormed. So we've got to point out a couple other interactions because none of what you've said here is wrong, but we got to move on. One of them is that you cannot pay alternate costs with this. So you can't gush by returning lands out of your graveyard. You can't, um, what's another example? You can't force of will by pitching a card out of your graveyard the turn you're doing this. You can play uh, mana costs with um, Phyrexian mana, so you can probe or misstep out of your graveyard with the Phyrexian mana, so that's nice. And I do think we have yet to comment on the way this card interacts with Paradoxical Outcome. The, the fact that this is a effectively a sorcery, because it's an effect until end of turn, that just happens to be a permanent I think is incredibly yeah. noteworthy. Yeah. And you started oh off with the comparison God. to Yawgmoth's Will, but I think we need to spend some time talking about the comparison to Snapcaster Mage. Because this is a Snapcaster Mage that you can cast Black Lotus with. So absurd. It's a Snapcaster Mage. It's so absurd. As you said, if you've got five or six cards in your graveyard, it's a Snapcaster Mage where you can just cast the Lotus, get extra mana to replace the cost of this, and then cast the spell you were going to Snapcaster. 
albeit yeah. it must be at sorcery speed. So it doesn't function as a Snapcaster Mage does with respect to counter magic, Pyroblast, Flusterstorm, at all. But everything else that's sorcery speed that a PO deck might want to do, this is far superior than the Snapcaster Mage. Now, I assume the PO deck is going to be able to win the, on the spot that turn, but if it can't, it can just time walk and then pick this up and play it next turn, and the time walk turn. Well, it's just this. Car- you mean through paradoxical, paradoxical outcome? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I wanted to make sure you were, that's the point you were making. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It's just so absurd. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it seems like all these things that we're, are, are unusual about it, right? The, the fact that it's an enchantment, mm-hmm. the fact that it's a permanent, the fact that you sacrifice at the end step, right? Those are, those all are really subtle advantages in this format. Mm-hmm. There's very, you know, enchantment removal is not super prevalent, force of vigor notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it's, it's, it's not a sorcery, har- so it dodges common counter magic. Exactly, exactly. It's it's just it's so well positioned to be broken. Yeah, I, I really fear this card. <laughs> I didn't think it's it's just it, it's really absurd. Actually, I'm excited about it too because I hope it reorients the format back in the in the way that the format felt when Yogmas Will was was really the dominant strategic force in the format. Because I love that. I love those vintage formats, those vintage environments. If this does that, that's going to be awesome. Steve, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Did you ever play in a format of any kind of magic that allowed unrestricted Yawgmoth's will? Um, constructed, I don't think so because, uh, no, I don't. Okay. I don't think so because I, I didn't play, I quit type, I quit type one in 1996 because I was sick of the lack of support for the format and I got back in 2000. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I may have played in some, I want to say may have played in some like eccentric, you know, invitational <laughs> format or something right, like that, right. but not that I can think of. Well, I played in standard when Yogmas Will was unrestricted. I played mono black stacks <laughs> such that you could just, um, on turn, let's say two to three after you'd spent some resources in the first two turns. This was a ridiculous deck. It had all the Urza Saga silliness plus dark ritual from masks. Um, you could accelerate out some artifacts on turns one, one, two, three, and then just play a value will. Like maybe you sacked one thing to a smokestack. You just ritual out uh, a Yawgmoth's will and replay a land and a, and a grim monolith and just re- rebuild. And then two or three turns later, you draw a second Yawgmoth's will and you just do it again, right? You just rebuild a little bit. We've never really had that in vintage because Yawgmoth's will didn't right. get any significant amount of time unrestricted. This card, though, is going to start that way. You're going to be able to right. play a value Underworld Breach for just, I don't know, two cards in the in the early game, and you're going to draw into another one. And you're going to be right. like, wait a second, no. I get to do this again? No. <laughs> I think you've really... This is something that I may have said, but I don't think I really made it clearly yeah. explicit, which is this card, the marginal utility of the second Underworld Breach is much greater, I think, than the marginal utility of the second Yawgmoth's will for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One, the first is the one I've already stated, which is that you know the the cards that you play post will are exiled, mm-hmm. whereas the cards you play post breach are not, and so they continue to feed breach. But here's the other problem: you know we've always talked, we've you know I think in our early shows and you and I off the off the air, so to speak, have often talked about when you do a when do you do an early will? Oh yeah, remember back in the old mean deck gifts days, you like. Oh, yeah. Turn one, Merchant Skull, turn two, Ancestral, and like maybe, you know, turn three, Yawgmoth's Will, just to play Ancestral and maybe like a fetch land or something, right? Right. Where it's like an early will, or like a, just a turn one, Ancestral, turn two, will. This, and so it, at some point, like, after you do that, you're cut off from mana to, can, to keep going, and you've used the will to get significantly ahead, but it's not as 
powerful or impactful as it would have been if you had waited another turn or two. Whereas this card, you don't have that problem because not only because it's unrestricted, but because you can play this to get some some value. But then everything you do after you resolve this card makes the next one even better. So if you play this on turn two and play one or two cantrips or one or two cards, then you've, you've built up the graveyard even more, but you're out of mana so that your turn three Underworld Breach is even better. So it, it has a snowball effect that Yawgmoth's Will really doesn't have mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. That's what you're getting at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it could, it could affect deck construction in a way that we can't exactly foresee in different archetypes. But I have to point out that this already just plays very well with the way decks are constructed, partially because decks are constructed to abuse Delve today, right? And I'm, I'm not saying right. decks are only built to, to abuse Delve. It's just that these things happen naturally in vintage. The, the celerity that you observed earlier between fetchlands and cantrips and artifacts that go to the graveyard of their own accord, combined with the common looting in Xerox decks like DAC and JVP, all of these things conspire to mean that the environment is just naturally lubricated for Underworld Breach and multiples of them, even if you haven't changed your deck construction in any particular way. Kevin, how broken is Yawgmoth's Well in current vintage, in your opinion? Uh, not very. I would describe it as a role player in particular archetypes. Interesting. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the, you can still build up to it in PO and get some game-winning plays out of it, but I would say that's, you know, that's not the standard. It's not the, the primary target of that deck. I would say that there are multiple cards in that deck, Tinker, PO, Wheel, Twister, that kind of thing, Mentor even to a degree, that are competing for that same level of brokenness. Better. Yeah, and sometimes better. Is this card better than Yawgmoth's Well? I think it's situationally better and situationally worse. Oh, yeah. that's a that's the easy answer. I'm asking I know, you. I know. <laughs> overall, I, I'm asking. Well, you let me put it this way: when you say better, I would say in terms of in many metrics, yes. How much play it sees in vintage, I expect us to see more. How many decks it supports, yeah. I expect I expect us to support more. How players feel about it when they're building and playing, I expect there to be more higher opinion of this. So in a lot of metrics, I expect this to be superior to Will, and in some cases, far superior to Will. This, is a, this card Its really playability absurd. in Xerox means that it's going to see far more play than Yawgmoth's Will is capable of right now. Because I played Grixis Xerox decks for years uh, within the past decade. I never put Yawgmoth's Will in those decks. This card is one when of the I, most... I could pot- have, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't. This card is one of the most potentially broken cards I think that we've ever reviewed. I'm serious. <laughs> That's a bold statement. And we've reviewed cards like Paradoxical Outcome and Snapcaster Mage and, and many other uh, highlights. That's a bold statement, but I can't say that I disagree. It just this makes card- it makes restricted cards. So fundamentally, vintage. what separates Vintage from other formats is that it has a restricted list. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to replay restricted cards, not just one more time, but a lot of times, potentially. You could potentially play Ancestral Recall three, four times in one turn, Kevin. Black Lotus, three, oh, four times in one turn. Time absolutely. Walk, three, four times in one turn. And then do it all over again next turn. That is absurd. <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, and it's also interesting that you use that particular example. Not that it's unwarranted in any way, but the format has recently, especially through the lens of Mystic Sanctuary, gained a certain lens around recursion that it hadn't had for many years right it's the the format simply didn't have many regrowth effects it it even didn't have yawgmoth's will effectively for a prolonged period in the last decade we've seen a, a resurgence of yawgmoth's will because esper po is very good but 
this the mystic sanctuary has highlighted something that you've just observed and this card pushes that to the extreme so we've got modern rug walker decks that are designed around mystic sanctuary with part of the goal one of the primary goals being to loop time walk this card yeah. just amplifies <laughs> that possibility it's, to the makes, nth degree it's, it makes it's incredibly mystic sanctuary good. look I don't know. I know. <laughs> so it innocuous. Makes, you're right. The Mystic Sanctuary pales in comparison to the potential of this. You're right. You could cast, you could e- reasonably cast Yog or Time Walk like two to three times in a in a late game turn with this. So easily. absurd. And the fact that it, it allows you to bring everything back except lands. I mean, that's the one small advantage Yogmos will has, is you can replay a fetch land or a Telerian Academy or something like that in your graveyard. Sure. Sure. Uh, and that was often part of the value will play, of course. Right. Just so insane. But the fact that, you know, that's an interesting point, too. So I want to point out this goes along with what you said earlier about the difference between flashback and escape in the vintage context. And one of those key differences is the fact that we have quote unquote lands that are non lands, right? We have Black Lotus, but we also have Moxon. So you can set up an even more bombastic underworld breach. In, in multiple archetypes by discarding Moxon, if you so chose, right? You can pitch a Mox to Dak or JVP just in the Xerox context, and suddenly it becomes a quote-unquote land that you can play with Underworld Breach. I think that's going to be relevant, and not just with Black Lotus. All right, Steve, we have, for lack of a better term, gushed about this card enough, I think. I think we need to get to, down to brass tacks and start talking about methodology here. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's... I don't know. This this kind of card makes me just want to throw out our methodology. I mean, it's I don't even know where <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Let's, it's just it's so beyond. It's let, just it's it's so broken. It's that... so beyond where I can po- I look. This the, the, <laughs> the scope of possibilities for this card are just ridiculously large and to understand like the the effects and the responses are just are hard to really they're really hard to pinpoint. I mean, th- the floor is shockingly low, but the ceiling is beyond imagining. That's the problem. That's the problem. It really is. I mean, it's like I think the the card that I saw the most play that we've ever reviewed is is Graph Digger's Cage, which can go into almost anything. And this card can go into basically any non-shop, non-dredge deck in the entire format now, because almost everything is like blue, blue, red, X, right? It's like, like, or it could be right from lands to you know uh, Eldrazi to. Um, Oath to Xerox, all the flavors of Xerox to PO, they all, all can run this card. Will they? I don't know. Um, but the thing that really gets me exciting are the potential combo decks that can be made with this card. You know, the Dark Ritual decks. I mean, how does DPS not run this card? It has to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely has to. So can you recall, and it doesn't have to be an exact number, but can you can recall the Xerox number from our last show from the last quarter for Q4? Sure. What was the quantity of, and you don't have to look up the exact number. I'm just thinking ballpark here. Well, was in it, December, was Xerox it 40, fell 50, to 60. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Total Xerox archetypes in top eights. That's what I mean for yeah, the last in, quarter. Sure. In, in Q4, do you want the number or the percentage? The number. Cause that's what we're going to okay. be using as a baseline here. Well, I'll give you the, I'll give you the specific breakdown for the different okay. Xerox lists. So, cause I, th- I think that's just, a reasonable place to start. In October, there were four Just Guys for the Vintage Challenges. There were four Just Guys Xerox decks in top mm-hmm. eights. In November, there were zero, and then in December, I had marked as one. Okay, so that's five Just Guy. Do you have a, a rug number? Yeah. So for rug, I had um, one in October, zero in November, zero in December, except for the um, mid-range rug, which sure. I had 
zero in October, three in November, and two in December. So five. So six five rug. Five plus the one. Yeah, six rug lists. Okay. And you're only looking, obviously, at the challenges. And so yeah. uh, we know from experience that there are a handful of other, either, either paper events, well, paper events uh, around the world that bolster those numbers that will be included in our report card, obviously. Now, this this time of year is a little bit light on large-scale paper events, as we know, but there's still going to be a few. So that's a good baseline, right? So we had about a dozen Xerox lists in Q4. I've done a, a, a bit of quick math using TC decks and found throughout paper and online that there were PO decks, about 30 of them in that time period, and DPS 9. I didn't look up the Xerox numbers. It's harder to do. But if you look at decks with just preordain, as which I think is a good baseline, preordain decks number in the, I don't know, 50 or 60 in that time period. That obviously sweeps in a whole bunch of archetypes. I think that gives us a good guide. So we could take the approach of how many archetypes does this card fit in, even as a one of, and what portion of those archetypes you think we will do we think will adopt it. That could get us a baseline. What that about would be DPS? my preferred starting place. I mean, there were seven DPS de- top eights in November and one in December and two in October. Yeah, I got I got nine starting in October. Given that we're most of the way through January here, I, I wasn't start I wasn't counting October, so I started in November and got nine. But what about your, Oath? Your I mean, is this just an automatic inclusion in Oath, even if you're not playing Sun Titan Oath? <laughs> That's a really good point. I think it might be. Almost every modern Oath list in the last couple of years has been rug based. And so it seems like a no-brainer just for the Xeroxy capabilities of it. And then if you factor in the Sun Titan interaction, it gets even better. So I would argue, yes, I would argue that this is an auto-include in Oath, even if it's not a Sun Titan build. It sounds like we are saying that Xerox, Oath, PO, and DPS are obvious home for this. Basically, every blue deck in the format, everything that isn't Shops, Eldrazi, or Dredge, Am I understanding that correctly? Is there a blue deck that I haven't well, listed there the, that you think wouldn't play this? Well, it, I mean, the bug decks, even be, even if they splash R, you know, splash a little bit of red, you could easily see them playing, you know, one or two of these, and, and that would be just fine. Because they're, I mean, think about this. <laughs> the fact that it's not, the cards aren't exiled means that, mm-hmm. it means that you can play, just get some real good value from it right then and there, you know? And then... Yeah. Of all the decks we've described, I think Bug is the deck that probably could is going to be the least broken with this. But it costs less than Yawgmoth's Will, so it's better than Yawgmoth's Will and Bug. Yeah, and it plays well with Deathrite Shaman. Since this card is not returning lands, the fact that you tend to exile your own lands when you need to, is you're not punished by that in this card, because you weren't going to anyway. That's interesting. So I would agree that Bug, obviously, Bug that's not willing to splash R can't play this, so that's a tautology. But I have a feeling that many Bug lists... Are, are reaching into R already, and many more would be inspired to just because of this card. So it sounds to me like, to, to my eyes, the numbers are really high. The numbers of decks that could play this are up in the up in the 50, 60, maybe even 70 range, depending on the quarter in question and, and, and how much blue is played. And I think we can use a scaling factor to say not absolutely everyone's going to adopt this, but it's very reasonable, in my opinion, to say that the the three and four color versions of PO that have become very common, like the 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 no, well, some of them are five color, right? Some of them touch Oko, yeah, and Pyroblast. <laughs> right. Some of them touch, Dak, yeah, some of Lavinia, them touch um, Mentor, Lavinia, and and Black, yeah. 
So I'm not 100% of PO decks necessarily, well, but a could, high portion of PO decks are incentivized to play this. This is the thing. If you're PO, what are you playing black for? You're probably playing black for Demonic, Yogwill, and Vamp. Maybe yeah. that's it. Why do you need those cards anymore? Just run red <laughs> in this card. Seriously. This is better, than, straight up, be- way better than Yogmoss Will in PO. It's a and permanent. you get to play more than one. It's a permanent. It's just better for that reason. It's it's more efficient. It's better for that reason mm-hmm. alone as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're just running Yogmoss Will in like DT, I would say for cut those, let's shave off black and we'll be playing two of two Underworld Breach. You know, it's so funny that this is a permanent and that it goes to the graveyard when it's done because I could see a world where you could chain these together in a way that's not even that's not obvious. Meaning you play the first one for value and PO, like you just flashback ancestral or something, right? And and maybe you rebuy Lotus. Then you then that one goes to the graveyard and you play another one, but you have so much mana that you replay the first one just to bounce it with PO. <laughs> and then you've rebought the first one. And you've got it to play again the next turn. You could get into a point where you're cycling these. You could you could conceivably so cycle PO time walk in two underworld breaches and and just take multiple turns in a row where you're casting yeah. PO underworld breach into PO time walk underworld breach and bounce the other one back to your hand. In the next turn, you start over again. Underworld breach PO time walk underworld breach. You we could, could you could conceivably take multiple turns in a row that way. We could spend literally the entire episode talking about this card i'm dead serious i mean this, I this, this scenario spinning, this, the turn sequencing we can envision you know the yeah i could I'd, I'd like you could talk about how broken it is to use top deck tutors with this card you know mm-hmm. like just i mean just it's so in, unbelievable the fact that you can it makes top deck tutors so much like vamp and mystical so insane because the fact all you want to do is get one of those cards in your graveyard and then once you resolve this card then you can just doesn't you can just replay the card over and over again until your opponent is dead. I mean, it's like <laughs> I'm, comple- it's just- I'm completely with you. I, I'm and also with you that we have to move on. So yeah. let's. I feel like the floor on this card is between twenty and thirty. I think that's the floor, and I think the ceiling is is forty to fifty. The, the, the problem, the, what, what I'm getting hung up on, is this card so good that we're going to start seeing graveyard hate main deck. Maybe. Is that is that what's going to happen? Are we going to start seeing like cage? Cage shuts this down entirely. Tormod's yeah. crypt. Is that what's going to happen? Is that what has to happen? I don't think so because, and I'll tell you why, because Xerox decks aren't going to play four of these. Xerox decks are going to start with one, maybe two, right? It's hard to find a home. It's hard to commit. It's hard to cut cards. People aren't going to be gangbusters about this in Xerox. So you're going to get one or two. You can't afford, if you're playing the Xerox mirror, you can't afford to include a card like Grafdigger's Cage, which by the way, hurts you just to fight your opponent's one or two copies of this. You have to, you ha- I think you have to fight on the axes that you're used to fighting on, which is counter magic. You have to include more force of negation or spell pierce or daze. Daze is a bad example, but you see my point. You have to just include more universal answers to try and fight this. You can't just load your deck up on Nile spell bombs or whatever. Anyway. I do think you're going to see a metagame reaction. I think it's going to influence the counter magic that gets played to some degree. Like, well, Flusterstorm becomes way worse in this environment. Yeah, I mean, the reason I say all that is because if if there could be a point at which if this, see, if this sees a sufficient play or a certain density of play, then we see a huge uptick in kind of ley line cage effects. Um, I I don't think you're going to see that stuff main deck. You might see some people adopt some strategies for boarding it in in matchups they're not used to. Like, I might start thinking about boarding in my ley lines in the, the Jeskai mirror or something like that. That's weird, but that's possible. I also would like to point out that Deathrite Shaman continues to have a natural foil to this, right? Yeah. 
And so that could give a kind of boost to death right and bug in general. I don't know. We'll see. There's a lot of different angles that already exist to attack this. I think counter magic is probably the most obvious one. And incidental graveyard hate could be one of them as well. Okay. But anyway, back to methodology. I'm going to say I'm not going to go any lower than 20 on this card. I don't want to go. I don't want to go ham on this and say 50. So um, my instincts are my instincts are 25 to 30. I think that's probably right. I think it's what we'll see. I'm mostly uninformed. It's not a scientific opinion. But if but if PO continues to be decent and it's putting up it's putting up thirty copies a quarter at least it, I'm sorry it did in the last one I just counted that's that's online and paper then most if not all those PO decks could be playing this uh, my number could be way low it, it you know thirty maybe twenty five copies from PO alone plus another ten or twenty copies from Outcome plus various DPS I mean this could be this could easily be fifty and it's in our report yeah, card yeah it, it, this that's the thing is this the Here's the the pro. I don't think we've ever reviewed a card that has a range of possibilities with a floor so low and a ceiling so high. This is the mm. the largest range I think we've ever reviewed. And the reason I say the floor so low <laughs> is because, I mean, so you said there's been one challenge, and looking at that, there were none in the top eight, right? So there was one. Oh, one. The, the, sorry. Oath, the oath deck, yeah, that so, I talked about was the only deck that played under a so the floor. Last week. The floor is one, but realistically, the floor <laughs> is probably like yeah. I mean, the I mean, what if like this just doesn't catch on? It's that's unimaginable. It's just unimaginable. I, I <laughs> well, but you make a fair point. What if next week there's only two, yeah. right? And then and the week after that, after there's that. only two. And, yeah. So you're right. I mean, the floor is realistically about a dozen. Yeah, that sounds right. right. But the ceiling include is paper, like our method 120. appearances right i mean because it could be in almost anything that's the thing yeah i don't know i'm just gonna say 40 and pass and just say whatever you said i'm gonna take the over and if you if you say (laughs) if you say under 40 i'm just gonna say 40 and then we'll be done realistically i'm gonna gonna, go ahead it it could easily be over that i'm gonna take the under on 40 i'm gonna say i don't know 35 but what'd you say 35 i am not gonna be surprised i'll take just just in the interest of precision i'll say i'll say 38 (laughs) <laughs> all right awesome all right we've got to move on well, you know i both love this card and would love to keep talking about it and i'm sure we will more later this next card is not going to be any slouch for conversation either this is thassa's oracle it costs uu it is a creature merfolk wizard it's one three when thassa's oracle enters the battlefield look at the top x cards of your library where x is your devotion to blue put up to one of them on top of your library the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order now, here's the kicker. If X is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library, you win the game. So, again, for two mana, you're looking at X cards, where X is your devotion to blue. Now, X, the floor on X is ostensibly two, because you've got a Thassa's Oracle in play, but it goes up from there if you've got a Planeswalkers and other creatures. You're putting up to one of those on top, which means zero is a possibility. You could put all of them on bottom, and then, oh, by the way, if you looked at your whole <laughs> library, uh, you win the game. Now. Uh, Matt Murray's already monkeyed with this card in a way that you can probably guess, and that is if you compare this card with um, Demonic Consultation, then you can pretty quickly see that you can immediately win the game with this ability. You can cast a Thassa's Oracle, and if it resolves, you put that triggered ability on the stack, and then you play Demonic Consultation. And if Demonic Consultation resolves, then you name Humpus Wumpus or whatever, exile your whole deck, and then Thassa's Oracle's trigger resolves, and you look at a deck of zero cards and win the game. Pretty cool interaction. There's a couple of other ways to achieve it with worse cards, of course, but 
The simple truth is, is you can build a pretty streamlined just blue black deck if you want and just go for this combo in a similar way that you would go to Doomsday. It also happens to play pretty well with Doomsday. Yeah, I mean, I, what I want to do to to review this card is to juxtapose this card with Laboratory Maniac, which you haven't mentioned yet. Absolutely. Good comparison. And I think the, the comparisons are interesting, and, and not in beyond the surface obvious comparison, which is that both function as finishers for Doomsday. Mm-hmm. Because Doomsday exiles most of your library, then you can, you know, whatever. And basically what happened... So the, the mainstay... You know, there's basically two standard Doomsday piles. One is where you have uh, Ancestral on top of the pile. Like, let's say it's a pass the turn and you uh, you untap, you Ancestral Recall into Black Lotus, Laboratory Maniac, and Gush, leaving you one mm-hmm. card left in your, your library. And then you can you cast Black Lotus, cast Laboratory Maniac, then cast Gush to trigger the Laboratory Maniac. The other standard pile, Kevin, is if you have Gush in hand, so obviously this is no longer standard because gush is restricted. But if you before it was restricted, the standard pile was you you gush into ancestral recall and black lotus, and then you cast black lotus into um, maniac, uh, yogmoss will, and like a lotus petal, and then you just you know lotus lotus will maniac, and then replay a, a cantrip for the win. Um, this is interesting in that it, it so it's. Situationally better and situationally worse than Maniac because number one, what Maniac allows you to do is put multiple triggers on the stack. So for example, there are lots of games where if I, I know my opponent has a removal spell, like let's say an abrupt decay, you can sit in, in the Maniac in play with a cantrip in hand and a top in play. And if they try and kill it, then you just respond by activating uh, the top to win the game, right? Mm-hmm. And they can't if they do nothing, then you just go to your draw step and win, and then they'll respond with their removal spell, and then you respond with the cantrip, like a brainstorm, or an, or a gush, or an ancestral, or respond with the top. And you can play multiples of those to get around multiple removal. This doesn't have to deal with removal, though, because it's a comes-into-play trigger. Now, the problem is that, so if you have zero cards in your library, you still win the game, even if there's zero devotion. So you don't actually have to protect this card once it's in play, like you have to protect Maniac, but you you can't get as many triggers either. <laughs> in other words, you can just respond over and over again with Maniac to try and trigger it. If, right, you've only got one shot at this. Yeah, one shot at this. On the other hand, this is cheaper than Maniac. You know, if you with Lotus or Lotus Petals or things like that, this is less now you can't use a ritual to to cast this like you can with Laboratory Maniac. The fact that you get an additional mana that you can use with Black Lotus that you don't have to pay into this is quite important because you can use that mana for a preordain or a top or something like that. So for a, a strategy like Doomsday, that when it's in its final stages of game completion or operations, is so mana constricted, I think that makes this card better than Laboratory Maniac. But you're not going to be able to use this as an oath target like you could with Laboratory Maniac. So I think in, in Doomsday... This is better than Maniac. I do. I think, though, that in terms of like combo decks, like Demonic Consultation or Divining Witch combo decks, it's unclear. Yeah, I think that's a critical point as pertains to how this card could improve a Doomsday list and just generally the, the cheapness of this card, two versus three mana, and the fact that you can, you can just play this out with 
a number of different conditions met and and either make faster piles vis-a-vis doomsday or just make another win right vis-a-vis demonic consultation makes this card very threatening i would say and i I like the fact that you also observed how even if your devotion is zero meaning this card resolves but then gets killed with a lightning bolt for example while it's triggering on the stack if your library is empty even with devotion zero you will still win the game because right. the the trigger condition says if X is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library, right. and if zero equals zero, you still win. Still win. <laughs> yeah. Pretty nice. Yeah. So it's pretty clear, and, and and I'm not nearly as excited about this card as I am about Underworld Breach, but it's pretty clear that it enables a couple of different things. Doomsday is pretty interesting, but at the same time, Doomsday is such a sliver of the metagame right now that it could be it could be that even if this is good in doomsday that it doesn't manage to put up any top 8s unfortunately right and also one other point of comparison is uh the 1 3 may actually be situationally better than the the 2 2 on laboratory maniac just because it can block and kill and you know without trading a pyromancer dark confidant you know a number of other things on the other hand, it's not like you're going to be able to run this out here and, and attack into a planeswalker situationally. But its efficiency yeah. is just it's its efficiency combined with the I think the built-in resilience for the kill makes it superior to Laboratory Maniac for Doomsday. Well, you know, I think you're touching on something too that you haven't stated explicitly. Also, but this card is just a fine card to play in a way that Laboratory Maniac will never be. Right. <laughs> the power toughness notwithstanding. This is also a search card, right? right. This is a cantrip it's of kind sorts. Of like it's, a, not, yeah. it's a scry card, yeah. And so this card enables itself. If you find yourself with two or three of these in your opening hand, that's not a dead draw in the way that it would have been with a lab man. And you can afford to play more of these than the one lab man, which is ostensibly good for only the combo. So you so said that's definitely a mark in its favor. You said that uh, Matt Murray had drawn up a brew with this. Do you happen to know what was in that? How that was built? It was, I think it was primarily just a blue-black heavy list. I think he had one Doomsday in it, and he was more or less trying to execute the Thassa's Oracle plus Demonic Consultation combo primarily, and otherwise just playing blue-black control, uh, combo control at that point. So he was playing it in, not in the challenge, but alongside the challenge. I think he was double queuing at the time. I only saw a a couple minutes of it, really. But I did see the list out in front, and it was not a Doomsday-centric list. So I'm pretty sure that he he may continue brewing with this. I think there are a lot of different variations that you could use this to approach. At the very least, you can take an established Doomsday list and graft this in, possibly right. in place of the Laboratory Maniac, possibly in addition yeah. to. But I'm I'm really trying to envision possibilities outside of Doomsday for the moment. So I want to stick yeah. outside of Doomsday because I think it's really yeah. clear it's a strong candidate for inclusion over Laboratory Maniac within Doomsday. But what about outside of it? Yeah. I'm with you, and I would be inclined to do that as well, because I think this combo is just easier and cheaper to execute, and it it has certain risks still, because it involves um, exiling your library, but if you play it right and you build your deck right, you only do that, you only take the exile your library approach once you've got a Thassa's Oracle trigger on the stack already, and so you can mitigate that risk in particular. I think that there's a pretty strong blue black and or grixis approach to this archetype and it's also true that there are more cards that exile your whole library just nothing does it quite as well or as efficiently as a demonic consultation does right but you could look at some other more obscure cards like paradigm shift or something that don't do as much or as well as a consult ever will 
I do think it's appropriate to leave yourself outs with the doomsday in a list such as this, the way Matt did. He had one doomsday because there are certain situations that really only doomsday can get you out of. Right. right? Um, but regardless, I, I agree with your approach to the thing. I'm disinclined to think that it's going to be a new wave of, of power and vintage, but it's certainly viable in my opinion, playable. Another thing to consider, which I hadn't, is that this card is actually incredibly powerful in multiples because this. Oh yeah, the, the sec- second one is was way better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the um, trick is though, there's no, there's in my eyes, there's no reasonable way to get your library naturally small enough that this will just naturally win with some right. organic right. amount of library. Left. You're always going to have twenty plus cards, you know, in, a, in, yeah. a, in the usual game of of vintage. It's possible you could build a deck that focused on looting a little bit more. You could play the you could play the frantic searches and faithless lootings of the world and try that, but it just seems like you still need to resolve a, a half dozen or more of that effect and have the game go your way to even be close to that. Right. So I guess And that just seems unreasonable. Right. So that those kind that kind of tinkering isn't going to get it done. So there's basically three broad approaches. One is doomsday, one is you go a control deck that has an oops win with this, which yeah. you know is kind of what Matt's deck looks like. And the third is you could run a really aggressive combo deck that's hyper focused on trying to combo out. Yeah. With like with if it's not Doomsday, there'd be like demonic consultation slash divining witch, something like that. Makes me wonder if you could graft this into PO because there's some albeit smallish synergy between picking this up with PO again. You could have a PO list that has a consult and therefore has kind of an oops, I win alternate path to victory when you just happen to, like, you play this aggressively. You play this on one because you got a, an opal draw, and you find a PO, and you're like, okay, I'm playing the PO path. Then you PO the first time, you find a second one of these, you play it, and you play the second one, and, and along the way, you find PO and consult, and instead of winning with Mentor or or Bolas' Citadel, you just stitch that together. Right. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting card. I don't know if this is going to see a lot of play. I haven't yeah. been able to come up with a formula that <laughs> seems incredibly compelling outside of Doomsday here. And Doomsday is incredibly niche at the moment. Yeah. Um, so Interesting that I think that you, that you can construct a deck such that Demonic Consultation is basically a one-card win. Because you, oh, could, yeah. you could consult, consult for, this. for this. If you need it, you could consult for yeah. PO as a four of. You could consult for Underworld Breach as a four of and thereby rebuy your consult it's if you had sufficient mana this could be a you could turn consult into a one card win through this or po or, or a breach or something like it that is to say i'm avoiding consulting for a restricted card in all those examples anyway i i think this card's cool i am real skeptical that it's going to put up more than one top eight <laughs> uh and i'm inclined to take the under on a one. Oh, yeah yeah, so I basically have to bet, is Doomsday going to appear in a top eight in the next three months? That's basically the bet. Yeah, it's which is not a long shot. No. Doom, Doomsday put up two top eights in the in Q4 of last year, one in Magic Online and one in Paper. So that's not much of a long shot. I have no recorded, like, dedicated Doomsday decks in Finish Challenge top eights. I know that uh, I ran one in a league midsummer, and then Sean Anthony... Uh, played one for a little while at the end. I think at the NYSC and a couple other places, and did middling. So I don't. I don't think Doomsday is really poised. This isn't going to take <laughs> Doomsday to the next level, right? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I feel like the floor here is zero, and the ceiling is I don't know two. <laughs> All right. I'll take one. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. 
<laughs> Ever the optimist. I think. Well, I think what what I'm betting on is that the probability that a doomsday deck appears in a top eight plus the very small off chance that another deck plays this in the main deck or sideboard. I think when you combine sure. those two probabilities, it gets over fifty percent. So I think it becomes a one becomes a better than not bet. So. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I'm, I'm with you there. <clears throat> Let's move on to Dryad of the Elysian Grove. This costs 2G. It's an enchantment creature, Nymph. It's a 2-4. You may play an additional land on each of your turns, and lands you control are every basic land type in addition to their other types. 2-4 <laughs> so for exploration, three. exploration plus Prismatic Omen on a 2-4. Nice. Uh, mm-hmm. Just so I'm clear on the, the rules here, but... When a card is endowed as a basic land type, that means it can produce mana of the that color, right? Yes, it does. So okay. your lands will produce all five colors. Interesting. Okay. Was there a time in which that wasn't true? The early game? I I don't think so. For as long as I can remember, basic landness meant that you produced that mana. Okay. But I think there was a I think there was a point at which in the early days, you know, in the nineties, that that rule was specifically clarified. Right. Because it wasn't that way during alpha. Right. But it was pretty soon after that they wanted it to be that way. Yeah, like I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there are cards that basically turn one basic land into a different land type. And oh yeah, they were all over the place in the early days, right? And not <laughs> just like phantasmal terrain, you know, but like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So when this card first came, was spoiled, I saw I saw Matt Murray post on Twitter that he thought it was a, a tailored design for rug walkers. He, he thought it was a very good design because it so strongly enabled Mystic Sanctuary combo, meaning it does two exact things that you want for your Mystic Sanctuary combo. It lets you play additional lands, which when coupled with Sanctuary, Ren and Six, and, and Gush, is just advances that combo more quickly and allows you to execute the whole combo more efficiently during your turn. And also, making every land a, a an island meant that your quantity of lands was even more susceptible to enabling Mystic Sanctuary, meaning you could have a Wasteland or a Strip Mine in play, which also counted as an island and allowed you to Mystic Sanctuary more aggressively. Since then, my understanding is he's tested it and wasn't very impressed with it, but uh, there's been too much to test, so I don't know if he's shut the door on this or not personally. I'm disinclined to think that this this effect, regardless of cost, but I'm disinclined to think that this effect is really the thing that shores up that deck's weaknesses in various matchups. Even though I would say it is highly synergistic with the, the execution of that combo and uh, a number of the the little interactions along the way, this does enable Ren and Six, for example, quite well, and vice versa. A two four for three is a decent body, right? It's a little sure. smaller than a Tarmogoyf, but it's big enough to stand in the way of average workshop creatures. It's big enough to stand in the way yeah. of Leovold, for example, and a handful of other things, and it doesn't die to a lightning bolt. And it's big enough to pressure uh, a Teferi, not a Teferi, but a, a Narset on one, or a Teferi on one, I suppose. Yeah. I big think, enough to pressure Dak profitably. I think what I struggle with with this card is that, you know, despite the acronym, Rug is not really Rug. It's really blue, red, green. Mm, I you see know? your point. And, and so this card is a green tactic in a deck whose tertiary color is green. And really, in these Rug decks, I guess it depends on the list that you're looking at. But the only quote-unquote green cards in these lists are Oko and Ren. And in those cases, green is the secondary color. So, like... I'm interested to know what you think the practical impact of your observation is. Well, I think that... I think what it, the practical impact is that the second line of the card mm-hmm. is is pretty much worthless. 
if you're going to use this to get some fixing capacity, I don't think it really does much at all. So oh, I see what you mean. I mean, m- yeah, making your tropical island tap for red is a pretty small benefit, if any. I would say. I think. I think the bigger issue is or- that <laughs> you could, yeah you could play with one more wasteland than you're expecting to and smooth your mana that way. You can keep draws that can't produce red if yeah. you can expect to land this and and fix your mana that way. So I think it opens up a little bit there. But I, in conclusion, I'm with you though. Like that is not an area that really is shoring up the deck's weaknesses strongly. Right. So if the, if you were if you were to point me to a deck that was like started in base green and had like you know like tabernacles and maze of Iths or something like that, then I could see a strong case, right? Because then you're you're tur- you're you're turning these these lands like bazaars into mana production. So that would well, have it sounds real like value. you just described lands. <laughs> that's a base green deck that yeah. has all the lands you just listed right and so, could really benefit from playing multiple lands a turn and tapping those lands for mana when it needed right but you were talking specifically about rug, rug walkers so. uh, uh, absolutely but i didn't mean to i didn't mean to pigeonhole this card into that archetype Fair. i was just starting starting there <clears throat> do you think this i mean the lands deck seems that it could abuse both halves of this card even more so yeah i think i think it seems tailor-made for lands that's what i was, I was kind of getting at is that yeah, I, I don't really think this card seems very good, and I, I would be skeptical that this would be very good in Rug Walkers. Number one, Rug Walkers has very few creatures. Number two, like I said, like the green is basically a tertiary color. There's no green only cards in the in the deck, and um, I mean, sure, getting to play another land turn seems useful, but the deck only has two rens anyway, so you actually have to have a ren in order to really get maximum use out of that. Otherwise, you're doing weird things, like I suppose. Wasteland my Mystic Sanctuary so I can Mystic Sanctuary again next turn or something. I don't know. I, I just don't... That that doesn't seem particularly exciting to me. If you're going to do that, <clears throat> I think you'd be better off just running... What's the what's the land that... um The creature that allows you... The Crucible creature? Oh, yeah, the Excavator. Yeah, Rating I would just rather excavator. excavator over this. So, That's a fair point. Um, you lose the Acceleration aspect, but you gain more card advantage, which this doesn't provide in any way. Right. And you gain some more inevitability, too. Yeah, and a little bit of power on the board. So I, yeah. I would probably run Excavator over this in Rug Walkers, and I can't imagine running either. Um, <laughs> we, we haven't done that yeah, yet. Um, but in lands, this is really intriguing. Let's find the most recent you know, uh, recent lands deck. So there haven't been a lot in recent, uh, in recent months, especially since the uh, Vintage Championship. But, you know, and of course, there are different kinds of lands decks because there's the old Crab Shack list. Right. Well, so there's a lot of ways you could try to define lands, and I just did a quick search for Bazaar of Baghdad and Tabernacle in the main. Yes, and I think Fastlawn is the key, but go ahead. Well, that's that's good, too. The last version I saw of that is um, from October, so let me do a search for Bazaar and Fastbond main, because maybe the Tabernacle's in the board. Uh, no, that's still October, too. Yeah, that's what I'm at. I'm at October yeah. 5th, and I found... So this deck doesn't have these decks don't have any creatures. Uh, they could run creatures. There's no reason they can't. Mm-hmm. They they have Crucible. You know they have Fast Bond. I could see I could see putting one or two of these in a, in a lands deck. Yeah. They have creatures in the sideboard like Elvish Reclaimer as a win condition. This seems perfectly reasonable for these. I kinds would agree. Of decks. And I I want to double down on your observation of these decks don't have creatures. I think one of the reasons you're pointing that out is simply that they're stranding creature removal for their opponents. Yes. Right. Yes. But I would argue that this Dryad still strands some creature removal. Like, it's it doesn't die to Bolt. Right. So you, you need a two-for-one yourself or get some kind of additional effect, like Ren plus Bolt, to kill this thing. 
And so it does activate swords to plowshares, but I would posit that swords is actually already active because these are dark depths decks. So even though there's no cards of type creature, they definitely have creature related threats. And so if you can get your dryad plowed and then come in with dark depths, I think you're actually winning that game. <laughs> yeah. But and that's the- neither here nor there. The, the, the point is, is I, I agree with your assessment that I think this is a good role player in that kind of deck. And the ability to get two, the fact that you get two abilities out of this for the price of one, I think really makes it situational, has a higher overall situational utility. So those decks, you know what? Those decks are running Riftstone Portal in order to get this effect. Yes. Basically, in order to be able to tap your Dark Depths to pay one of the mana to activate Thespian Stage. So this is kind of doubling up on that Riftstone Portal ability in a way that they might find desirable. Agreed. And they have four yeah. crucibles, so like you know, if you were to accelerate out with Mox Diamond into this, you know, you're you're going to be able to get a, a lot yeah. of value out of that pretty quickly. Yeah, this is redundancy in the fast bond slot, basically. Yeah, it functions kind of like a, a fifth or sixth fast exactly. bond, and kind of like a fifth or sixth Riftstone Portal. And through that lens, it seems like a natural fit. Yeah, yeah. But so that brings us back to this lands deck it, is not all it, that common these days. But by the way, that it turns the bazaar, the bazooka bog, the buried ruin, the dark depths, the chasm, the shop. Oh, yeah. All those into Rainbow Lands. Wasteland, Thespian Stage, automatically. Tabernacle, Strip Mine, all Rainbow Lands. Well, that's why they run Riftstone Portal. Yeah. And also, and that's interesting. So the, the deck tends to not have any cards that aren't green or white, right? Enlightened Tutor, Crop Rotation, Life from the Low, and Fast Bond. And in the sideboard, Sanctum Prelates, Force of Vigor, Elvish Reclaimer, Collector Oof. So this is a green-white deck. I mean, at least the versions that we're looking at are almost exclusively green-white. This Dryad could actually open up some additional splashing, but I'm not exactly sure if the pilots of this deck are interested in exposing themselves to that risk. It's an extremely marginal deck right now. It's not like there are a lot of people playing it. So, Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and so speaking to that, to my eyes, this kind of build that has Fastbond in Bizarre, at least, is uh, looks like four copies. That is, four copies in top eights in Q4 of last year. So that's not nothing. It's more than Doomsday. And so if every one of those tried a, a Dryad, we could see this thing balloon up to as many as five appearances, maybe. So I suppose we can't shut the door on someone playing it in Rug Walkers, but I would posit that your conclusion is correct, and this is more natural home and lands. And I would say it's probably, the ceiling is probably still four or five to that end. How attractive do you think this is if you're a, a lands pilot? Does this shore up some things that you really need your deck to do? Or is it just the consistency element that you think is superior? Because it's a four fast bond, four crucible, four bizarre deck. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really hard to know, honestly. I think that the lands deck plays out so many different kinds of ways. My guess is that at the end of the day, that deck most of the time needs to probably find a fast bond to really go to go nuts. On the other hand, the miniature fast bond ability, the exploration plus the mana consistency probably gives you more tactical flexibility. I take your meaning, and I wonder... Let me me just be clear on what I'm saying. So so if you have this, and you have, let's say, a bazaar, and a life from the loam, and let's say like a wasteland effect, you could probably ride those interactions to a long-term game state where you're going to win. Yeah. And because you can play two lands a turn, it does mean that you could put the whole combo into play the turn after you play this. Right. Let's let's say you accelerate this out, but you don't have another land drop, but you've got Bizarre, 
and you've got life from the loam maybe or something. And so the, the combination of Bazaar and yeah. loam finds you both halves of the combo. You can just put both halves into play. And because your uh, Dark Depths taps for mana, you might right there have enough mana to execute the Dark Depths combo. Well, what I'm actually saying is a little bit different. I'm saying that you can probably generate, uh, you know, <laughs> achieve a board state where you can achieve, you can establish some level of control over the game. Mm-hmm. So you can probably like waste and land your opponent twice and maybe get a, your bazaar going to find another situational tactic until you've established such control over the game that you can just ease your way into the two-card combo. Yeah, yeah, I see your point exactly. Yep, I like it. I think it's a pretty natural fit. I'm not saying it's going to become a staple, but it seems really attractive for people to try. Yeah, to that end, it's, it feels like saying anything other than non-zero means you're betting against lands making it any kind of top eight in the whole quarter, the next quarter, and that doesn't feel right, so I think I'm going to go one. Well, I, I am going to bet against that. I think that Lance has had its moment. I think the Brewers are interested in other decks, and I think appropriately so. And I think similarly to Doomsday, this card doesn't position or elevate lands to a level or tier that either makes it suddenly more exciting mm. or stronger in, predatorily in the metagame. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. So does that mean zero? Yes. All right. Let's move on then to Ashiok, Nightmare Muse. Ashiok is three blue-black legendary planeswalker Ashiok. Starting loyalty is five, plus one. Create a two-three blue and black nightmare creature token with, quote, whenever this creature attacks or blocks, each opponent exiles the top two cards of their library. Minus three. Return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. Then that player exiles a card from their hand. Minus seven. You may cast up to three face-up cards your opponents own from exile without paying their mana cost. <laughs> this is pretty fun, right? Oh, this yeah. is kind of a nice healthy return to the, hey, let's uh, five mana planeswalker, five loyalty, plus one, minus three, minus seven, you know, like. That's a return to form right. of a sort and uh, under the model of Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. And I do think that Teferi is a pretty close comparison to this card. A lot of the numbers line up. A lot of the effects line up in one way or another. It's worth noting that both Ashiok's plus and minus ability are card advantageous. The plus ability creates yeah. a token, so that's a, a virtual card. And a 2-3 creature is not... It's a little worth a little less than a card in vintage, I would say, but it's still close. <laughs> and then the minus three ability is is straight up, you know, card advantage. You're bouncing a permanent and then they exile a card from their hand. And if you manage to get them empty handed, it's just exile target permanent, which is pretty sweet. Can I pause you for a second? I want to ask, what would be the mana cost on the first ability? Do you mean the creature? Yes. The two, three creature? That has that ability. I, yeah, I think that at common, that creature would cost... Um, three mana and be a little a little over costed mm-hmm. but if you were going for an uncommon or a rare you could cost that creature at two mana interesting be fine yeah i think at uncommon that would cost two yeah because there's plenty of other two threes with upside and that's a pretty moderate upside since it's not card advantageous why did you ask that out of curiosity comparing well, to other walkers in your mind no i just uh, wanted that, to see how much value that really is if it was yeah. if it was flying then you tack another mana onto that uh i think so yeah yeah like okay. th- two, three but flying would be three, it three triggers minutes. whenever it attacks or blocks, so it's not like a hypnotic specter in that regard. It's a, right; it doesn't have to connect. Yeah. And exiling the top two cards of their library is not all that attractive no, an not, ability. Not that disruptive. Right? Yeah, but it feeds the last ability, which is the critical point. Exactly, and, and also 
you can get incidental value out of the, the ultimate just because vintage is the format where people are want to delve away things. Now they don't tend to delve away their best cards, so obviously that's true. But assuming you've got this right. in play and you'd had to plus it two times in order to get um, in order to get to the ultimate. It's pretty reasonable to get a decent value out of the minus seven, but it's not game breaking potentially. Well, Kevin, I want to I want to say something. Um, I think your initial observation this was a throwback to an earlier design model for planeswalkers is mm-hmm. really quite keen, and I think it's also revealing in the negative way because, <laughs> because I think I follow. Yeah, because I think you're absolutely right, but I also think that that model has been superseded. By the Dak, Oko, you know, Narset, whatever, you know, the three mana or or less, frankly, kind of utility planeswalker. Yeah. So you've gone from like we you know, one way of thinking about it is like the the big bomb Tezzeret planeswalker has been completely re- you know, and, and the kind of the pinnacle of that was Jace the Mind Sculptor. You know, the yep. really pushed the <laughs> the boundaries with multiple useful abilities, lots of card advantage. That that day and age is gone. That era is over. And I think that that model of a planeswalker is obsolete in contemporary vintage, utterly displaced by the Dax, Oko's, uh, three mana Teferis of the world. And I don't see, yeah. the, I don't th- see these cards coming back anytime soon. I mean, you know, just looking at it, like when we first, first saw the card five mana planeswalker, you know, when you had suggested, when this was suggested on the list, I mean, five mana is just, an enormous expense for planeswalkers in contemporary vintage. I can't remember, you know, the last time we reviewed a five mana planeswalker. So I think, I think this is a, a, would have been a very interesting card five years ago. As it stands, no shot. <laughs> well, I can't disagree really with any of that. The, um, the simple truth is the last top eight that Teferi Hero of Dominaria made was in 2018, November of 2018. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So it's been more than a year since Teferi Hero was putting up results, and there's no sign, based on any indicator that I have, that that trend is going to change. What's the name of the more recent Teferi? That's Teferi Time Raveler, the three-mana yes. one? Yeah, that's what I, the one I was referring to earlier. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. Well, and you asked an interesting question, so I want to go back through time and look a little bit. You said you don't know when the last time we reviewed a five-mana Planeswalker is, and we've we've obviously talked about many Planeswalkers in our time on this show. I would say the last five, I guess in this case, or more that we reviewed might be Ugin the Ineffable from War, who's actually six-mana, but has a very... Wow, that Ugin has a very similar model to this Ashiok. That's actually very interesting. That is the the plus one creating a creature that generates some kind of value and then the minus to destroy a permanent. There's obviously a little more to it than that, but that's kind of a funny comparison. That Ugin actually does see play or has seen play, ironically, but I think it has more to do with being colorless than anything else. Still, I'm with you. My conclusion is the same as yours. This The, the era of, of big mana control decks using five mana walkers to seal up the game is has passed us i think i think we're all pretty spoiled for oko and ren these days in addition to the the omnipresent dac it's going to take a lot i mean oko is a lot it's going to take a lot more to introduce a planeswalker that unseats the current suite that we have but it's not just i mean i'm saying something more than that. i'm saying the whole model has been replaced but you know like oh yeah it's not just oko and dac it's oko dac the more recent teferi the Ashiok, more, you know, the last year's Ashiok, all of them. There's just the three mana planeswalkers are just, I mean, the three and two mana planeswalkers just load up 
the top <laughs> five most played planeswalkers, really the top ten list, right? Of most played yeah. planeswalkers. I don't even think Jace the Mind Sculptor is on the top. When was the last time you saw Jace the Mind Sculptor in a top eight? I mean, I'm sure there was one <laughs> in the last quarter, maybe, but certainly last year, but it's, you know, incredibly marginal. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Jace the Mind Sculptor is still played. In fact, it has made, it was in the top um, of the Vintage Challenge on January 19, for example. There were two copies. But that's just the exception that proves the rule because <laughs> uh, one of those top eights, the second place deck from the Vintage Challenge was an incredibly roguish bug deck that had Dovin Hand of Control. And, wow. And it was, it, was a, it was a very unusual list. And so that was quite roguish. And the other one was uh, Josh Potuchek, who... Landstill. Um, yeah, Landstill. And Josh always plays Jace. Josh always plays when he wants. The, <laughs> that, those are exceptions that prove the rule, though. I mean, prior to that, it was spotty appearance for Jace the Mind Sculptor as a one-of in December. And it's definitely unusual. No appearances in October, for example. The whole month of October, there was no Jace the Mind Sculptor. Right. I mean, I didn't even mention Narset in my list of three mana ones the, the second time I mentioned that. Um, yeah. For God's sakes, the Joe Brennan's Vintage Championship winning list had a black, all black planeswalker. Was it Visara or something? So uh, No, you're talking about Liliana the Last Hope, yeah. who's also three mana. Right, yeah. three, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, yep. uh, mo- that card sees play where Jace doesn't. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, I think the, the downward top- pressure on mana costs is so high. Yeah, I- I'm saying I think like probably nine, if not all ten, of the top ten most played Planeswalkers in 2019 in Vintage were probably either two, three, or four mana Planeswalkers, not and not including Jace. And the four mana yeah. ones were all Karns, is my guess. <laughs> yeah, one yeah. Karn or another. <laughs> I agree with you. I- I'm I'm agreeing with everything you're putting down here. I'm going to go with zero on Ashiok. Are you zero as oh, well? Yeah. Yep. All right. Sorry, I thought obsolete was clear enough, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Ox of Agonis. Ox of Agonis is 3RR, creature Ox. It's a 4-2. When Ox of Agonis enters the battlefield, discard your hand, then draw three cards. It has escape with red red and exile eight other cards from your graveyard. Ox of Agonis escapes with a plus one plus one counter on it, which would make it a 5-3. All right, let me me rephrase that. So this card actually is consistent with my thematic critique of the escape mechanic at the beginning of the episode. You know, I guess technically when it escapes, it becomes undead, but it's actually (laughs) a creature rather than like, you know, an enchantment escaping the graveyard, whatever. Uh, (laughs) That aside. Yeah. So so tell me what you're thinking, Kevin, and why someone may have recommended or nominated this. The the triggered ability is everything here. When Oxivagonus enters the battlefield, discard your hand and draw three. So the notion of discarding your hand and then drawing cards is everywhere that Dredge wants to be. And so I'm pretty sure that the only use for this card is people envisioning casting it out of the graveyard in Dredge for the cost of RR and then exiling eight cards that don't matter. And to that end, we've had a couple different derivations of cards we've considered in the past that you, you might that have some ability to jump out of the graveyard for free. and. The only one that has ever really stood the test of time in that group is Hogak. And this card is, in my opinion, way better than Hogak. Now, Hogak doesn't, doesn't self-enable, right? Hogak doesn't discard your hand and draw three cards. But the, the simple truth is, is that this ox requires a structural change to the way that uh, Dredge is built these days to 
namely to put two red producing mana sources right. in play um in a way that hogak never will right, right. hogak uh, works with the material that dredge is already in the habit of of generating so I do think that thematically it works in Dredge and would be a very power- powerful thing if you could make it happen. But I think it's even at two mana, I think the effect is too much to ask structurally from Dredge. I'll give you a $2 bill if you can show me a Dredge list that top aided in 2019 with, with a lot of mana, you know, <laughs> or rather any. So, so yeah, I, I think we, we're past the day where Dredge decks are frequently seen playing Rainbow Lands, let alone more than a handful. Even before Force of Vigor and Force of Negation and Modern Horizons heralded kind of what Mega Pitch Dredge, as Brian Kelly called it. Even before that, you know, the Dredge decks in the first half of the year had no mana-producing lands in the main deck for the most part, and then just ran like six in the sideboard, which is hardly reliable enough to get red-red. You know, So I, I think we're this is not a reasonable card if I were to develop a spreadsheet of cards I would consider as a dredge pilot, I would not even put this on the list, even as yeah. a dread return target. And to put some specificity to what you just described, I just did a, a quick search for decks that had Bazaar of Baghdad and also Undiscovered Paradise. And I know that's not the only option, but I think it's emblematic. And there were only four examples of that in all of 2019. And I'm sure it was before mod- all of them were before Modern Horizons. Uh, nope. Yeah, the most recent one is August. But that list probably was running uh, Bloodgasts. Uh, you are exactly right. That's a Bloodgast list. But uh, that's so that's an example of what you're talking about, right? The, right. the simple notion that you wanted to cast a two mana spell uh, out of Dredge by paying actual two mana is, is pretty much gone by the wayside. Um, I think whoever is envisioning this card as playable in Dredge, ha- I think, has either not not really committed to the notion that Dredge has moved on from <laughs> paying this amount of mana, but I would encourage people to try it. I just don't think that it's going to lead to Dredge lists that are as efficient as what we've arrived at today. I would also point that you could make a case for this card in the same fashion as Bedlam Reveler back in the day. We reviewed Bedlam Reveler, which is... for for those who don't remember, is it's an eight-mana creature, but it costs one less for each instant and sorcery in your graveyard, and then it has this exact same triggered ability. When it enters the battlefield, discard your hand and draw three. We talked about that card in this, the context of enabling like a blue-red spells-heavy deck where you could expect to get value out of emptying your hand and then refilling. That was a card you could cast from your hand, conceivably, for red-red and refill your hand with three cards, and that one never saw play either. Right. I, I just don't think yeah. that this effect... Is it, this effect has to be very incidental mana wise in order for it to touch dredge anymore, and it has to be more efficient than this Oxivagonus is in order to touch to touch uh, blue base decks. I'm a I'm a firm zero unless you can conjure up something else more interesting. <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to go with zero on the ox. Next is Kunaros Hound of Athreos. This is a very interesting one. Mana cost is one white black. Legendary creature Hound. It's a 3-3. This is a three-headed dog, which will make the next statement more obvious. (laughs) Vigilance, Menace, Lifelink. Those are the three heads. Creature cards in graveyards can't enter the battlefield, and players can't cast spells from graveyard. Wow. So here we have a three-mana creature that has most of the text box of Grafdigger's Cage. Not all of it. It doesn't have some of the library stuff, but it has the operative stuff that creatures can't come in and you can't cast spells. So this is a 
pretty firm hoser of dredge and the dredge adjacent things like survival and it basically touches most of what Grafdigger's cage does but notably doesn't limit you from library which means it doesn't stop tinker for blightsteel colossus oath it doesn't stop oath either yes every time i look at Grafdigger's cage i mean i i've internalized what it does obviously but every time i just read the card text i'm just awed by its facial <laughs> by its facial simplicity I mean, it's it's really incredible that in two succinct, pithy statements, it does so much. It's it's kind of astonishing. I mean, it stops yeah. uh, Bolas' Citadel, all this, uh, you know, all this, you know, um, all the nonsense in the world. Um, yeah, we've talked about that before, and, oh, yeah. I, and I couldn't agree more. It's 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 really really impressive what, what was accomplished in Grafdigger's <laughs> Cage. Well, there's a reason that it's it's one of the most played cards in Vintage. Yeah. Uh, but, so this, but ahead, uh, yeah. what I'm reminded of is you, sir, are no Grafdigger's cage. <laughs> True enough. And it's got it's it has two lines, but it has a third line for the uh, keyword mechanics, keyword abilities. Yeah. Um. No, three three. We don't really care about the vigilance. The menace is what is menace? Basically, something to do with blocking. It has to be blocked by two or more creatures. Okay. What is this yeah. like? What what's the legends keyword ability where if it's blocked by each additional creep rampage? Like, <laughs> rampage. Jesus. <laughs> Well, it does make it this card slightly better at threatening enemy planeswalkers. Menace is nice oh, in that respect. That's a good but, point. But I agree that you wouldn't play this card for any of those keywords. Like if it didn't have any of those keywords, you would we would still be considering it in effectively the same amount. Yeah. yeah. So, so the simple truth is is this doesn't hurt oath, so that this would be a purely a dredger survival hoser, and we already have Yixla Jailer at two mana, and we already have Containment Priest at two mana in either of these colors. Right. So um, it, this is this is basically one half of Grafdigger's cage. Uh, yeah. So Kevin, looking at it, what this does, creature cards in graveyards can't enter the battlefield. That means it stops Icarid. That means it stops uh, Prized Amalgam, Vengevine, Bloodgast. Blood, yeah. Well, Vengevine's is a good one. Bloodgast, I'm not going to give you because it sees almost no play. Um, right at this point, players can't cast spell from graveyards. That means you can't cast Dread Return. It means you can't cast Cabal Therapy. This is a pretty it also disables Snapcaster Mage. Oh, and Chase the of course, Vrin's prodigy, and the big one is under underworld breach. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. Yogmos will. <laughs> yep. Um, there's one other. Oh, it also stops Dreadhorde Arcanist. Yes, and flashback uh, ancient grudge or anything else. Yeah. Um. No, no. It's, it's it it an- does it does a significant portion of what Grafdigger's Cage does, but the fact that it doesn't affect Oath. Right. In addition to the fact that it costs one more mana than the, the other creatures that we use to fight those effects i mean i just think this is a straight up zero it's interesting and from an analysis standpoint i think we've covered it but i don't think we need to go much further what if this card had haste it would make it far better at um fighting planeswalkers right i mean instead of so vigilance would have had haste menace and lifelink let's say i think it w- i think my conclusion would still be zero but it would be far more interesting from a combat standpoint yeah because then it would give it some relevance against like xerox decks and and against Things like bug and rug. So as it stands, even though this is word salad from a creature standpoint, it's not very impressive. It still just dies to a bolt. Yeah, it can't. Just it can't even be inferior trade with the hollow to, one. Yeah, the only I'm, menace is a thing, right? Menace means that your opponent's planeswalkers are going to die occasionally, even though they have have a blocker. So that's that's nice. But yeah, it just doesn't tangle very well with the larger threats in the format. And it's not big enough, even though it has lifelink, it's not what, big enough, I don't think, to, to have be a big factor in racing. What if it had a, a clause that said something like, and maybe I'm 
maybe I'm extrapolating too far here, but what if I had a clause that says something like, if your opponent has 10 or more cards in the graveyard, this gets plus four, plus four, or something like that. <laughs> Interesting. And the, the, what Interesting. I'm trying to get at is, how good against dredge does this have to be to see play on a sideboard for dredge? Because, I, just, I, I mean, this is basically, I mean, it's not quite Yixla Jailer, and certainly not as efficient as Yixla Jailer, which is probably going to be decisive regardless, but it's pretty good again. It, I'm just wondering, it, could this be an anti-dredge sideboard card somewhere? Well, to my eyes, the name of the game with anti-dredge sideboard is uh, efficiency first. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's, there is one upside that this thing has over Yixla Jailer, and that is it doesn't die to Contagion. Which doesn't even see play over um, sh- uh, Sickening Shoal right now. That's far more yeah. far more heavily played. Yeah, and so this dies to most applications of Sickening Shoal still. Yeah, I just don't... I, to answer your question, I, I'm not sure. If this was like a 7-7 seven, seven on average against Dredge, then I don't know, maybe. You made a good observation about how it matches up poorly with Hollow One. So even if you manage to stem the tide against Dredge, like you had turn one Tormod's Crypt to stop them from getting over on you in the first two turns, and then you you slam this down on turn two or three, then even at that point, it's still, gosh, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's worth it. You'd have to add a lot to this for me to want to try that. And even then, it's it's it suffers from what I've observed in a number of cards in the past, and this, this can't win the game against Dredge on its own. The effect is good enough, too, but the mana cost is just... It's just yeah. too high to expect to yeah, do that. Yeah, that's... You, I mean... You can't keep you can't keep a seven-card hand that just has this. And that's that's a death knell for an anti-dredge card, in my opinion. I mean, barring you've got two Moxon on the play, okay, fine, I'll give you that. If you slam this on one on the play, then yeah, you could keep that, but most decks can't do that. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I just don't think it has enough upside over Yixla Jailer, but it does pretty much just shut down dredge. And so is there any chance that there's going to be one in a sideboard lurking somewhere that will give this an, an appearance? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I- I'm with you, and I just can't imagine. I mean, white and black are the two colors that have <laughs> the best ancillary anti-dredge cards, right? <laughs> yeah. You're talking about the, the colors of Rest in Peace, Containment Priest, Yixla Jailer, Leyline, Surgical Extraction, Trap. I mean, these are the anti-dredge colors in Vintage right now, so I just can't imagine. All right, all right. <laughs> the only other thing I could think of is if there was some incidental way that a deck had that got this creature specifically into play in a way that didn't work with priest or jailer. Like, I don't you know, search your library for a creature that costs three and put it into play. Like, there's nothing that's that specific or narrow that specifically gets this that I can think of. No, I, I, I don't think so. But we should move on and talk about a card that really does have some game against Dredge, and that is Soul Guide Lantern. This is an interesting one, Steve. It's an artifact. It costs a single generic mana. When Soul Guide Lantern enters the battlefield, exile target card from a graveyard. Tap, sacrifice Soul Guide Lantern, exile each opponent's graveyard, or one tap, sacrifice Soul Guide Lantern, draw a card. This is, in my opinion, a fascinating hybrid between <laughs> Tormod's Crypt yeah. and... It's- and Nile Spellbomb and um, Relic of Progenitus yeah, and Scrabbling right? Claws. It's, it's, it's the perfect example of situationally better or, or you know, situationally <laughs> worse, different. It's yep. just, it, it's such a, a mashup of those cards. It's hard to actually keep in mind the kind of differences between each of those because, you know, yeah. there's so many of them now. So let's let's just try and be clear as, about that. This has a comes into play ability that does something mm-hmm. immediately, which is novel, right? That's something that's new. Uh, it, yeah, with, within the realm of this set of subset of cards, it is unique. Right, yes. and that has two separate abilities. 
So you can sacrifice it to draw a card or and for, pay a mana to sacrifice a draw card or sacrifice it to exile all opponents' libraries. Now, notably, those abilities, one has a mana cost and one doesn't. Yeah. And it works in your so, favor because it's the the one that you wouldn't want to have a mana cost is the one that doesn't, right? Yeah. So you can you can play it and then get one card and then immediately sack it for free and also get their whole graveyard. So it functions just like Tormod's Crypt. There's right. a there's a semantic one. difference. Yeah, because uh Tormod's Crypt says exile all cards from target player's graveyard. So you could actually target yourself if you wanted to, but it's only one player. This card says uh, exile each opponent's graveyard. Now, in a typical vintage match, the difference between those two is going to be uh, academic. I do think, though, but- there is a potential nice little on-ramp here, because if your opponent... Let's say your opponent's on dredge, and they've gone turn one, bizarre, activated it, and they discarded one dredger, and then, like, a bridge yeah. from below. And, you know, like, something that doesn't really matter. A third card that, like, doesn't really matter like now. Like, let's say a Hogak, just for simplicity. Or yeah. let's just say a Serum Powder, to keep it simple. So it's Bridge, a dredger, let's say Stinkweed Imp, and a Serum Powder, right? Well, yep. then you can put this into play, exile the dredger without having to actually, you know, sacrifice it to, yep. to, you know, to, to hose them entirely. So it, it gets you, I think, more time than the Tormod script does at the price of a mana that you could use yep. that mana to say play a preordain or cast, you know, a graph digger's cage or whatever. You know, yep. cast a soul ring. I guess it doesn't. Soul ring's a bad example because you would just use a soul ring to cast this. But <laughs> but you your you point get, is well made though. Yeah, or Sensei's divining top. Uh, Deathrite shaman. Deathrite shaman yes. is actually a really good comparison because you really are making a sacrifice right. there. Right. And, and it's yeah. also a good example because Deathrite shaman is the kind of card where if you can keep them a little bit under, you know, then the Deathrite shaman can get going, and you might even not even need to use the second ability. So I think this yeah. has got a, that that could be situationally better than Tormod's Crypt. I think you just have... To, it's hard to really know. It really comes down to the zero versus the one. And, and in, a, in a metagame where, you know, mental misstep is restricted, it's not like that really should be decisive either. Um, yeah, it's also, it's also kind of nice that this... You get the best of both worlds when you're fighting Force of Vigor with this card because you get the yeah. trigger when it comes in, but you then your still, opponent still has to respect it. You still get something, right? Yeah. Even if yeah. they force a vigor, you still get something out of it. That's really nice. That's really nice. Um, yeah. So let's go to some of the other ones. So Relic of Progenitus doesn't really see any play right now. That I was just I was just researching that. The last appearance of Relic was in December, ironically. It was in a paper tournament in Japan. Before that, huh. it, was in ju- it was in June. I mean, Relic has seen over the years, like in 2018, Relic saw a lot of play out of the sideboard of Mud. Right. It was consistent in the sideboard of Mud was Relic. I think the fact that Mud produces more, uh, greater counts of mana made Relic more attractive because they could expect to, you know, it's a full mox deck. They could expect to play it and it, they were doing it in addition to their Graft Diggers cages. So it was kind of like additional benefit. Relic has um, the activated ability that says target player exiles a card from their graveyard, and that's not nearly as good as the triggered ability from this card, right? Because you're, you're obviously your opponent gets to Just exile choose. their the other their terrible card, their their serum powder right. in that example you gave. So, but I do think that if they had access to it at the time, that Mud would have run this soul soul over. lantern, yeah, over Total, Relic. Totally agree. I think this is better than Relic. Not strictly yeah. superior, of course, but it's, it's. But I think in the context of mud, I think it is, yes. this is a superior. This is the superior right. card. And then well, the, it's also worth noting. Sorry, Steve. This 
card plays excellently when part of your anti-dread strategy is wasteland. Because in the example right. that you just gave, right. you can let's say you have dredger. a wasteland and a mox, you like Shops always does. Yeah. Yeah. Hit you hit that one dredger and, and waste, waste their bazaar. Right. And that oh, really great. puts them behind. Yeah. Oh, it sure does. It's, and um, so the wasteland interaction means this is, I think, absolutely a good candidate for workshops and bug. And then let's go to the fourth one you mentioned, which is Nihil Spellbomb. Yeah. Um, the Spellbomb, like Relic, allows you to get the activation and the card draw in the same the same swoop. Yes. Whereas, you know, but but the cost of a, you know, they're a black if you pay. Um, Two the, mana over time. Right. The Nihil Spellbomb costs one to cast and it activates for... It activates for free, free. but then when it goes to the graveyard, it you triggers and you may pay the black. Right. Yeah. So, hmm. Nihil Spellbomb in this... I mean, look, I, I just think this this has basically an additional ability. It's like if you took all those cards, you know, <laughs> if you had a comes into play ability, they would all be better, right? It's like, so uh-huh. so that's really the distinctive feature here. I think this so is I would basic- say the, the, the ceiling in terms of like card advantage isn't quite as high as it is with Relic or Spellbomb. True. Right? You can't just exile the graveyard and get a card out of the deal. But the the combination of the rest of the factors here, I think, counteracts that. I think you, yes. you're getting almost a card's worth of value on the triggered ability, right? Right. Yeah, this comp- is close to two cards worth of value. I agree. Just by just by casting the it. CIP and the activated ability. Agreed. I I yeah. think this is basically up there with Tormod's Crypt. I really do. Now here's one yeah. case where I think Tormod's Crypt is better. I think Tormod's Crypt is better with PO. Uh, I mean, obviously because it is in the free. sense that it plays. Yeah, it pl- it plays into PO just executing its its A plan by right. default. But I want to caveat that by saying PO is the one deck within reason that can abuse the triggered ability of this card. P.O. could play this on one, exiles the dredger, and then on turn two, pick this up and replay it again. Interesting. Yeah. And, and exile another thing. And so I, think I don't that think that's the, I don't think too, the A plan. It's too much of yeah. an impasse. <laughs> I, would, I would agree with you. My conclusion is not is that still that Cormod Script is better, but I do want to point out that P.O. could abuse the CIP with this and prolong the game if it wanted to. Yeah. Well, and in some board states, that would be a that would be desirable. I would say welcome to vintage. This is a timely yeah. addition to the format. I expect this to see an enormous amount of play. Yeah. So then my next question is: um, Do you want to play this? Does this replace give, something you're already playing in a deck that doesn't have access to black or white? Why don't you give us the baseline for Tormont script for the moment? How many Tormont scripts are out there in the last quarter? Ah, uh, yes. So I haven't done it. I haven't prepared it in advance, but I can tell you that the number is very large. This number looks like 50. Yeah, this number looks like it's pushing 50 going back. So I'm going back to the beginning of November at this point to try and generate a quarter from right now. But whatever, it's it's got consistent play to the tune of 15 to 20 copies per month. Yeah. To your point, though, a lot of these appearances, I would say more than half of these appearances are in combo decks like PO and and other Storm variants, right? And to your point earlier, this Lantern does not play the same role of being free in those kind of decks. So I don't think the Lantern is going to supplant much, if any, of that play. But other incidental examples like Oath and Blue-Red X, you know, Xerox decks... And anything that any mud deck that's still playing Tormod's Crypt or Relic, I think most of those examples should seriously consider the Lantern, and many will switch. So, what's your so, range? 
Yeah, so maybe half or a little less than half of 50, I think, is yeah is a, is a target number. Yep. So, you know, 20 is like a target number. I, I yeah, was going to say about 25. Of adoption. I think this is going to be yeah. about 25, 26. That's what we're looking at here. I think this might I, have a little bit of a slow burn because there's just inertia in vintage to kind of old standbys. Oh, yeah. This isn't but, that much better than Tormod's Crypt or Relic or something that everyone's going to obviously be clamoring to switch. But it is subtly better. Yes. And agreed. so I think that over time will pick up as people see yeah. it in results. This is, to be honest, this is not the card I want to see if I'm playing Dredge. Because the dre- <laughs> with the restriction of Golgari Grave Troll, you have fewer and fewer good dredgers. And I kind of skimp on them. I mean, I run kind of the bare minimum, which is th- th- you- that I ran with four troll, which is nine. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so this is just, this is a bit of a problem. Honestly, this card's a bit of a problem. Yeah. I guess you, you if you hit the Stinkweed Imp, boy, you're going to, you could real not just slow down dredge for a turn. You could slow down dredge indefinitely. You've kept a lot of hands, I'm sure, that were predicated on the one dredger being the primary threat, right? Kevin, I've like, kept a lot of hands of with answers. zero dredgers. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. But that just that just emphasizes the point in the extreme. So I'm totally with you. Like there are plenty of totally reasonable five and six card dredge hands that have two counter spells and a force of vigor, uh, you know, and a bazaar and a dredger. And this soul guide lantern does most of the work of a full Tormod's crypt activation just on when it enters play. Yeah. And that's hard to under that's hard to overstate. Vintage players should pick up four of these for their collections. <laughs> yeah. I am going to take the under on what did you say 20 or 25? I said 25. Yeah. I'm going to take the under just for the inertia reasons that we cited because I do think a lot of players that could be playing this are still going to stick with their crypts and whatnot. So Here's I'm something. Gonna go, I'm going to go with 15. Here's another reason I think this card is good. I think it. it I don't know if it's going to change your your conclusion, but if we're both right that Underworld Breach is going to see a lot of play, mm-hmm. this card is much better than Tormod's Crypt against that because the targeting means you can take the good restricted card. You can take the Black Lotus. Oh, you can take yeah. the Ancestral Recall. You can take the Time Walk. You can take that obnoxious card. Yeah. And they can't. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, replay duress or whatever to get it out. So I think this card is better than Tormod's Crypt against Underworld Breach, pretty significantly. Like well, and so you're talking about maybe in the context of a Xerox Mirror. Sure, doesn't matter because yeah, well, you're right. It doesn't actually matter, but I guess I'm picturing myself like I'm playing the Rogue Walkers Mirror or something, a deck that has adopted Underworld Breach as a serious threat, and I. You don't need to slam this out on the first turn because that's not the role it plays, right? So you yeah. you trade a couple of resources with your opponent and then play this out on on turn three ish, and yeah, you nab that ancestor recall. Now their underworld breach is just that much less effective. Or how about this? You're playing against lands, and your opponent just casts life from the loam, and you just hit life from the loam and set this in play. Yeah. Or you're playing I, I against like- survival, and you hit squee. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like. I'm totally there with you. I I love the fact that this has an incremental effect, which then requires your graveyard-based opponent to continue to commit resources as as though it's still just a Tormod script. Right. right? And then it oh, becomes super effective. Yeah. And also, the sacrifice to draw card is great when they've not committed more resources, yeah. but they, they, they go to destroy this. Yes. Right? Like, and, they haven't put any yes. more in their graveyard, but then they go the force of vigor this, and now you get the card back. Yes. 
this no, this it, thing just slices and dices. It's it so really good. does. It's it's so good. Did I change your, <laughs> did I change your conclusion? <laughs> um, I I you've you've made it harder for me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I, don't I, I know. just I, I'm really I'm, I'm not going to raise my number. I just I, but I acknowledge that this card is is really really good. I just envision you know yeah I mean you're going to just slam this at one. I mean look if you just slam this at one and remove ancestral recall or time walk or black whatever and you know your opponent's playing underworld breach you know and your opponent does something you might just just sacrifice this to draw the card get the card back and you've removed you exiled the you know you've exiled the the key thing. You yeah. Can, you know what else? Here's something else. Um. Suppose you know, like you've probed, and you see that your opponent has a Snapcaster Mage, and they have Ancestral Recall in their graveyard, or Time Walk in their graveyard. You know what they're going to... Or a Treasure Cruise. You hit that card, and then you just get the card back out of it. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah, also, I'm with you. Also, in the, in the Rug Walker's Mirror, like, the Rug Walker's deck has, like, what? One Strip Mine and two Wastelands or something like that? And your opponent has Ren? Okay. Yeah, you just get that Strip Mine. Yep. yep. Just hit that, and then I'll get the card back. Yep. Yeah, you're right. It's pretty nice. It's it's going back to the old main deck now spellbomb days <laughs> when Grixis was always good for one main deck spellbomb because the 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 opportunity cost was so low. Yeah, but but That's having point. three different abilities. This is the first one we've seen that has three different abilities. This is like a planeswalker. This <laughs> 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 is like a one minute colorless planeswalker. It's like like. <laughs> Craft Trigger's Cage is two, <laughs> two statements with four effects. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great. It's great. No, I think this is going to see a, a ton and ton and ton and ton of play. I just think that I think that great players are going to really appreciate that ability that that ability to to time when you play it to hit the the critical card. You know, like you said, slices and dices to to, to draw extract that card that card value back out of it at exactly the right moment. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's just going to be. It's going to be really good. And also, Relic, by the way, hits your own graveyard. Yeah, which this is, does not. Yeah. All right. We've simply got to move on. Yeah. We love this card, but we've got to move okay. on. All right. Next up is another cool, great card that we're going to have really interesting discussion about. Eidolon of Obstruction. 1W, Enchantment Creature Spirit. It's a 2-1. So we've got a, a bear. First strike. Loyalty abilities of Planeswalkers your opponent's control cost one generic more to activate. It's a first, Steve. We've got our first example of a, an effect, and it's on a bear, which you know we love, that punishes Planeswalker activations in just this kind of way. It's not quite Null Rod for Planeswalkers. It's like they've tipped their toe into it. They wanna, yeah, I, I knew you were going to say something like that, yeah. They, they want to test the waters, but they're afraid to, you know, go get all the way in. Um, so I'm fine with taxing. I... I don't think that a taxing effect on planeswalkers is particularly attractive in vintage. Um, there just aren't, I mean, look, even the, the most dense planeswalker deck in vintage has like no more than a half dozen or so planeswalkers. So I don't think it, and for those, it's usually going to have enough extraneous mana that like paying one or two mana to activate both planeswalkers is not going to be super taxing. So I don't really see much. The disruptive, the disruptive risk, the disruptiveness of this is not sufficient to really appear attractive to me. Yeah, I do feel similarly, and also it makes me wonder though which deck and what's the the, the real goal of this card when you're adding it to a deck in vintage right now. Uh, ignoring for a fact, it ignoring 
its efficiency and nor against rate. But when you're putting this into a deck in Vintage, what are you trying to accomplish right now? Basically, prevent your opponent from using a turn one DAC or Oko or something activation, ticking yeah. something up immediately because they're it, they're tapping out to play their first walker. Yeah, and, and so in a sense, you're taxing the cast of a walker. Now, you're, obviously, you're taxing every subsequent activation, but I, I, I can't shake the notion that that's not strong enough. Like, no. if a card that said, you know, the second and all, you know, everything after the first activation costs one more, that's real weak. That's that first activation you're really trying to slow down, right? Right. right. So you're playing. Let's just use an example. You're playing white green Eldrazi, and you really want to stop your opponent from from Okoing the turn they cast Oko. You want to stop them from making their own their mocks into an elk, or you want to stop them from making your uh i don't know your thalia into an elk and so i think this is pretty effective in that role but in that context you would be happier just to have a sphere effect right a sphere or a thalia or a thorn all do that job better don't you think that's exactly what i'm saying i think yeah and and so as such it's it's real hard to um it's just real hard to justify this look the planeswalkers have gotten so strong that they've really gotten out of hand (laughs) <laughs> it's, and so they needed to design some things that can begin to to grapple with that. And I think it's good that they're carving out this space, but this is not really a vintage aimed card. This is this card is not really targeted at vintage, in my opinion. I'm I'm a zero. Yeah, I, obviously, I know the way you phrased that was uh, about aimed at vintage, and I know they don't do that. But this, well, I would consider this card to be playable in vintage in the sense that it will function. It's it's going to be a little bit like Thalia in the matchups, especially those with, with heavier planeswalkers. And in the context of something like White Eldrazi that's trying to play a, a mana denial strategy, it would be somewhat effective against uh, rug walkers, for example. Especially if you're on the play, you get that that planes or cavern mox, and you cast Idol on Ob- Obstruction. And that would really turn off your opponent's you know, turn to Renin Six into rebuy my land, or turn to Renin Six and, and shoot a creature. But so that sense, it's going to have some function. But in the long run, this is just not where you want to be because your opponent is going to get out of that situation and be able to activate that Walker. I guess maybe maybe the thing we're missing here is the notion that if you disable that Walker for the first turn you play it, if your deck is sufficiently aggressive enough like a white Eldrazi deck is, that you could expect to kill any walker before it lives to a next turn. Because we often grade walkers on what their loyalty goes up to after their first activation, and we often encode a walker as having that initial increased loyalty. So if you play Renin, your opponent plays this on one, and you play Renin six, Renin six is only at three loyalty, right? That's ironically enough to live through this particular card, but let's use a three mana example, a famous one like Oko. <laughs> so you know, Oko is famously encoded as having like six loyalty <laughs> the turn you play it because play in plus is such a a common play pattern. But this Eidolon actually has kind of an outsized impact on Oko because you your Oko is going to be at four, and you know, in the average scenario, the turn you play it. And that puts it really, you know, within striking distance of an Eidolon plus a Thalia or a, an Eidolon and a Thought Not Seer or, or a Hasted Reality Smasher in a way that that six loyalty Oko wouldn't have had. Look, 
if you go, let's say, turn one Thalia, and your opponent, sorry, turn two Thalia, or turn one Thalia, and your opponent gets to four to cast Dak, you're probably still not even killing the Thalia. I mean, the, the Dak, you're probably getting it down to one or so, which in the long run will kill it, because they won't be able to keep it around enough, um, and or have drawn enough, but I don't know. It's, it's such incremental advantage. I, yeah. I just don't, I don't think it's, even if it functionally traded with the Dak, not sure that's really exciting enough. <laughs> okay, so to use a a mechanism that you want to use, do you think this can be a one of in survival? No. Okay. I think it could be a one of in a sideboard for Eldrazi, White Eldrazi, but even then, I don't think so. <laughs> even as a one of in survival, it's just so, so much better as Phyrexian Revoker, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Just turn off that. Yeah, walker. Revoker is kind of uh, it, it just fills that space so much more efficiently and effectively and versatilely. Yeah. So I would say I would categorize this card as playable, but I just don't think it's strong enough at its I'm not, in I'm its not, position. I'm not sure it actually is playable, honestly. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go with zero anyway. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about a fun one. Whirlwind Denial. For 2U, it is an instant that says for each spell and ability your opponent control, sorry, your opponent's control, counter it unless its controller pays for. This is just Flusterstorm for spells and abilities. <laughs> and it's four each. That's neat. So it's going to counter a tendrils because they're going to have to pay four mana per copy or have their own, yes. you know, fluster slash mindbreak trap. It also counters abilities though. Yes. So you can use this to, to, you know, turn off a planeswalker activation or a wasteland or something else fun. There is a limited number of cards that counter abilities. I mean, there's stifle, yeah. trickbind, rust. What else? Uh, what's the green, other yeah. green one? There's a, another green one that's green. Yeah. Bind. Bind. Yeah. Yeah. Not a You're lot. Right. That's a, it's a pretty short list. Yeah. And while this is not a hard counter, four mana oh, in the vintage context <laughs> is almost usually going to be a you know ninety percent hard counter. Agreed. And it's for and each. it's especially effective. Yeah, it's especially effective against storm because even if they could pay for one of them, there's no way a single tendrils is going to kill you in that sense. So this is actually kind of neat. Like you can um, you can stifle if you want. You can stifle a fetch land. You can stifle a. a planeswalker activation you can stifle a wasteland what else could you stifle that you would really want to that isn't storm <sighs> oh you know what's interesting you can stifle storm itself with this so you don't have to let them get all copies <laughs> right because you can that's what i thought you were talking about because you can no well i was assuming the copies were on the stack so if they have no. four mana you want to let all the copies go on the stack and counter all those no, no. so you y- you're the one who always says it, like Flusterstorm trigger, Tendrils of Agony trigger, right? When you can't. So, <laughs> no, so actually, it costs four for the trigger and four for the spell. They have to pay four um, for the trigger. You, you know what? You're right. I wasn't. I'm sorry. I was totally ignoring the fact that this would counter the spell and the trigger. Yeah. yeah so they but cast it's Tendrils for, it's for each. So if, yeah, that's right. So yeah, the Storm right. trigger, they have to pay four to allow the Storm trigger to resolve, and they also have to pour, pay a separate four to get the original spell to resolve. <laughs> You're totally right. Yeah, this is so. This is even better against storm spells than I was originally giving it credit for. You have to watch out if they have full four so, mana, though, about how it's going to play out that way. Because if they have four mana, you don't want to make that play. No, if because, they have four mana, they yeah. would pay to let the storm trigger resolve, and then you get screwed. You have to so wait for, for all the copies to go on the stack if they have the mana. Exactly. Then, yeah. then they're really screwed. So, so <laughs> then let me, they get one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so what about flusterstorm? As a fl- answer to Flusterstorm, obviously Flusterstorm is probably be- the better answer to Flusterstorm, but uh, for efficiency's sake, of course it is. But this will win Flusterstorm battles in a way that Flusterstorm doesn't always do, right? right? And so, just to be clear, if your opponent plays Flusterstorm and you have this, you should let the Flusterstorm trigger 
go onto the stack first and then announce this so that it counters all, so it targets all the copies. You, you want to let the storm trigger resolve That's what, is what you're said. saying. Yeah, well, you said no, no, let no. It go on the I'm stack. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, you want the tr- Oh god, I almost tripped myself up. Right? You want to let the storm trigger resolve, but you don't want to let the copies resolve. So you Correct. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, this is some delicate timing. This introduces a, an, a someone. You know, but but honestly, it's not that much different than Mindbreak Trap. Mindbreak Trap is no, easy it, because it's not conditional, right? But but a similar well, thing can happen because with Mindbreak Trap, you have to let the trigger resolve to get all the copies that's true. and then trap them all. That's true. Yeah. And if you just Mindbreak Trap before the the, the copies are on the stack, then you've countered yeah, the spell but out. not the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. But that's usually so a del- short delicate interaction there don't really talk much about in paper <laughs> yeah but this will also stifle a an oath trigger for ah, example yeah that's good a good point. one yeah and it'll stifle an activation of all those anti-graveyard cards we've been talking about not that you would want to take that approach as a way to fight those but it could and it'll also stifle more bombastic things that don't see much play like i don't know goblin welder or mind slaver or something like that it would be a funny yep. way to win a game against someone when they had um, Bolas's Citadel and Sensei's Divining Top, because <laughs> they go to right. put the top on top, and you just stifle <laughs> that stifle activation that, the top. and then kill them. Yeah, but you could stifle um, Thassa's Oracle, right? If your opponent's trying to win that way. Oh wow, this is a pretty nasty response to Thassa's Oracle plus um, uh, Consult. Right, because you can counter the consult <laughs> and you can counter the orc trigger, <laughs> the but time. you wouldn't want, but you wouldn't want to counter the consult. No. Actually, oh, that's really interesting because you don't get to choose what it what this targets. It doesn't even target. It says for each spell and ability your opponent controls, your opponent's excuse me control counter it. Yeah, so you don't get to be choosy. If they do the Thassa's Oracle consult thing, you're just going to have to stop the consult too. <laughs> that's pretty funny. It's better than losing the game, of course, but it doesn't get you the kind of blowout you'd really like. All right, so we've we've obviously talked about a, a oh whole bunch boy. of fun ways to play this oh card. God, if this card Kevin. costs zero, we'd be playing it every day. Ke- Kevin, yeah. if someone is playing with Necropotence and they go all Necro for eight, oh my <gasps> oh, god! Oh, those are uh, those are all triggers at their end step. Oh Jesus! <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yep, you're right. That is incredible. What an incredible beating against Necropotence! Wow. They've got to if someone has bargain, they've got to be very careful to do it one at a time. And, and uh, separate yep, that yep. out because holy hell! But Necro, it still screws Necro even if they do it carefully because <laughs> that's right. They don't have a choice when those triggers go on. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's very interesting. I'm looking up the Oracle wording on Necropotence to see how exactly that trigger is structured anymore. So the latest wording on Oracle, uh, sorry, Necro says: pay one life, exile the top card of your library face down, put that card into your hand at the beginning of the, your next end step. So the uh, the act of getting the card from the activated ability only triggers at the beginning of your next end step, which means if you stifle it, then they're never going to get that card. Wow. I was, I was looking that up because wow. I, there are yeah. other ways you could have worded this ability. Like if it says you know, at the beginning of the next end step, put all cards with Necro in your hand or something. Yeah, you know, there's doesn't. other ways you could have it's structured a trigger. this. It's a delayed trigger. Yeah. yeah. You know what else it can, it can stop? It can stop Academy Rector. Sure. It can stop a memory Absolutely. jar activation. Sure. It could yeah, there's stop lots of juicy a targets. Crystal brand activation. <laughs> oh, you're right. That's another real good one. Speaking of punishing Necro. All right. All right. Let's, we, we can list things till the cows come home, but the simple tra- truth is how much of this is worth three mana? Like, this is a decent counter yeah. spell. Yeah, that's against the, most, against most regular this, spells. But we didn't, it cost three mana. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so let's compare it to something like uh, Force of Negation, right? 
Now you're playing it in Dredge lately, so it's not a real good comparison. Yeah, I've but never Force of Negation, in Dredge. <laughs> yeah, gets it does get hard cast though. It's one of the upsides of Force of Negation is it's occasionally yeah. a castable spell. I did hard cast when I was playing my Stoneforge deck in the fall. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and, and I would expect you to. Yeah. And in that context, this is a far superior spell, right? Uh, well, if you're playing in the pay three mana for it, but you're not with Force of Negation, so that's not really a fair comparison. But I'm just wondering. Can you afford to sh- to shunt one of these into uh, a blue based deck? And I, I just don't think it's the, you know the the maximum corner the maximum case that you would want this for is the flexibility to stifle when you want it, combined with the flexibility to stop a storm spell. And I just don't think it's worth paying triple the retail rate for one of those as compared to Fluster Storm just to get an occasional stifle on a planeswalker or a, or a wasteland yeah because you're not you're not going to want to use this to stifle there's no. very few effects in vintage that are worth a card to stifle three, three mana is so pricey for a counter spell i mean it yeah. runs in the complete opposite direction of what we've seen in vintage what's the last three mana counter spell you've ever seen played in a vintage vintage match um, I'm sorry, but I'm stuck on force of negation but before force of negation i mean that didn't have an alternative cost right right I, I can't, can't even think of one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There are some creatures we've played that had spell-like effects, right? Like yeah. uh, Snapcast. Well, Snapcaster into Pyroblast. You know, that's a three-mana counter spell that I've done plenty yeah, of times. Yeah, there you go. That, that's fine. So that counts. But obviously, this spell is no Snapcaster Mage. I, I think this is cool. I would not describe it as as truly playable, but to be perfectly honest, it's going to be the it's going to do the job sometimes if people jam it into a deck. So I think it's not destined to make the cut in the long term. I'm going to go with zero, but I wouldn't be surprised for it to see play as people test it out. I just don't think it's efficient enough to to be a long term contender for top eights. Agreed. Let's move on to Nadir Kraken. One UU creature Kraken. It's a two three. Whenever you draw a card. You may pay a generic mana. If you do, put a plus one plus one counter on Nadir Kraken and create a one one blue tentacle creature token. So we got vertical and horizontal growth again, Steve. <laughs> oh, <God>. but, <laughs> but you've got to pay mana for this one, and that is I think that's a sinker. Yeah. Boy, when you line up something with Niv Mizzet against this, it looks so pathetic. Niv Mizzet? Yeah, I mean just the, the, the kind of chain reaction of triggers. Anything, oh, that, anything that interjects with you paying mana just becomes so much less exciting. Yeah. Um, I mean, how bad would, how broken would this card have been if it says when you draw a card, put a plus one, plus one counter and create a token? I guess it would be pretty broken, but even, it would be pretty broken, but God, I don't think that's better than, than the trigger that occurs when you play a spell. The, that version of that card would be immediately playable. There's no two ways I about agree, it. I agree, but I'm saying, is it better than the, is the it better than trigger? the, the, yeah, is it better than the pyromancer or, or mentor trigger? No, uh, that's a really good point. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, what is it? That, is it easier that, to draw a card, or is it easier to cast an instant or a sorcery or a non-creature spell? <laughs> it's far. It's far easier to, to satisfy mentor yes. or pyromancer than this. Yeah. Granted, a lot of modern planeswalkers would supplement this very well, JVP and DAC, etc. But that's a good point. You could every time yeah. you every time you cast DAC, you draw a card, so you could become very large very quickly. Yeah, this this plus DAC would get out of hand pretty fast. There's there's no way they could have allowed this without the mana cost, I don't think. 
But we don't have that card. We have this one, and I'm inclined to say this is a zero. Yeah, it would be super Even interesting. I, I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, if it, if it was the other, it would be super interesting to talk about, but otherwise, as it is, it's not really interesting at all. Yeah. All right. Let's finish with Kroxa. By, by the way, I just want to say that what still makes Mentor absurd is the fact that the, the monk tokens grow. That's what <laughs> oh, yeah. makes, that's the thing that makes it so absurd. So, and this doesn't <laughs> yeah, even have absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I don't, this doesn't I would that. be surprised. No, I would not at all. And I would be surprised if anything ever does ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's just, you'd have to work really hard to make something even worse than Mentor. Granted, you could do it with more mana, of course, four, five, six mana. You could make a yeah, worse card. But at, but, at that level of oof. efficiency. Yeah. All right. Let's conclude with Kroxa, Titan of Death's Hunger. Now, this is some word salad here. This card costs RB, legendary creature, cost. elder giant. Yeah, very good. It's a 6-6. Six, six. What's now? What's the cost? You wonder, given you got a two mana six what's six. The catch? Well, yeah. When Kroxa enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. All right, there you go. So when you pay it the first time, you don't get to keep it. Whenever Kroxa enters the battlefield or attacks, each opponent discards a card. Then each opponent who didn't discard a non land card loses three life. Then it has escape of BBRR and exile five <laughs> other cards from your graveyard. It's a, it's a little hard to parse these titans at first. I've spent some time thinking about this card and the other titan in the set, which we won't review. And genuinely, you got to kind of think of this, I think, as a sorcery, as like a red-black sorcery that just makes your opponent discard a card, and then no. a flashback card later no, on. No, no, no. There's no way I would ever, in Vintage, ever pay red-black and cast this. I would discard it with Bazaar. I would discard it with Dak. <laughs> I would discard it with a J- JVP. I would get it in the graveyard some- somehow. I would never, well, never cast it as a sorcery in that way. I, I, I'm, I'm with you that that is definitely the target state. What? I'm, I'm not being so uh, hyperbolic. I would absolutely cast this card, <laughs> but I, that would not be my A plan. I would be offended to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny, um, but you're, but you're totally right though in the sense that the, the A plan for this card is casting it out of the graveyard and theoretically having done so without you know using the stack as an intervening step. I. The thing that stands out to me most about this is the whole RRBB thing. That is, that I think that's a bridge too far. Yes, you can construct a deck that can get to that. Yes, a Deathrite Shaman deck could probably get you there with some reliability. But the decks today that play red and black are usually the Bugar decks, in which case red and black are the two least populated colors in those decks, right? Those are blue-green decks with a little bit of black and even less red. And so you're going to have to, in my opinion, bend over pretty hard to to get BBRR. And in any other kind of deck, yes, you could construct, say, a, a, just a Grixis deck that had this as an ancillary effect in addition to JVP and or DAC. But in that case, the mana is still really difficult because you're talking about fetching up two underground seas and two volcanic islands in the face of rug decks with wastelands in the face of shops with wastelands in the face of po and dredge they're just way faster than this can allow for i think there's some good value to be had here and you're really going to get one over on someone if you manage to resolve this from the graveyard i mean but uh you're asking a lot steve would you play this card if you could just cast it for that cost bbrr six six discard no. a card no yeah that's why i, I would pl- i wouldn't even play it if it was if if you could pay it for just black red and get a six six <laughs> I'm dead serious because I mean. Well, that's I think that's foolishness, but we don't need well, to. Well, no, because that. <laughs> what deck am I going to pl- like? 
I would have to literally design a bug that deck, card you're going to play in bug R. Yeah, I mean I have to design. Oh yeah, a bug I mean, I'll cast that. I mean, I'll cast that, a two mana Titan all day. But that's not the point. I don't want to. I don't want to debate that. Black red. Black red is like the two tertiary colors. Anyway, I mean it's. I probably would. You're probably right. But it would, even then, it would be a stretch. I mean, in, in in that case, you'd have a serious debate as to whether it's really better than Tarmogoyf, which can oh, yeah. get to you, that or close to that pretty quickly. And and by the way, is not legendary. So you can't <laughs> yeah. like rant. You can't max out on these, even if you you know could play it for two mana. Um, I think that the other thing is the fact that you can't even red return this is offensive. <laughs> as well it's a pretty strong restriction yeah that, uh, the only way you can get this to stay in play now granted there's some shenanigans you can do with multiple other uh, continuous effects that like remove its text box and then whatever that's not the point <laughs> the only reasonable way to get this into play is to escape it <laughs> yeah. and, and oath th- it. you're right that's pretty unfortunate yep you can't oath this you can't tinker it you can't bolas's citadel it there's just nothing you can do aside from casting it out of the graveyard well, I'm going to go with zero, but I thought it was an interesting discussion point, and uh, I don't feel as strongly about the how bad this is as you do, apparently, <laughs> but I do think it's uncastable with any reliability. I, it's not that the card is bad, is I'm offended by, I mean, I'm just insulted by, it, it's the principle of the thing, right? It's like insulting that something this big is just, they really don't want you reanimating it. They want you, co- it, they want you escaping it out of its cage, yeah. and that, yeah. they don't want you bringing it back any other way. Damn it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's so true. It's a very strong restriction that they've created here. All right. Well, that does it, Steve. We've reached the end of our Theros Beyond Death uh, review, and I just want to review those cards that we predicted play for. Not the numbers, but just the, the prediction. We predicted play for Underworld Breach to the extreme, Thassa's Oracle, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, Soul Guide Lantern in the extreme, and that's it. Those four cards. Two big hitters yes. and two very slight effects two cards so it'll be interesting to see the, the one card that could easily end up restricted and the other card that's going to be a format staple for years and years and years to come so yeah, yeah exciting. A, another contender for the graph diggers canes throne i would say <laughs> yeah. in the long term yep we'll see about that thank you for listening to episode 97 of so many insane plays you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get some more iTunes ratings from all of you. We've had some very nice ones, but the quantity is low. Thank you for those of you who did rate us. So if you could and you enjoyed this show, please go out there and rate us on iTunes so other magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.